This is another episode of Smart Home Stupid People. My name is Madeleine Siege. My name is Eris Felmuth. And today the title is Trust in the Calling. But first, um, I, have a, I have a video that I made a while ago. And uh, I think it really makes sense today to play it, right? To uh, I just think the, the topic is fitting. And uh, I feel like playing this. So I think hopefully you guys will enjoy it. It's a metal song from an old band of mine. So uh, let us know. If you like this kind of stuff, we'll throw it in later on more often. <laughs> if not, uh, maybe I'll stop. Maybe not. We'll see what happens. So <laughs> this is Paradigm from Falmouth. So 
There we have it. That was uh, an old song of mine called Paradigm. And the reason why I wanted to actually start with that today is because, uh, you know, the words are on screen and I think it's really fitting with what we're talking today. It's it's this concept that I had back in the past where um, people like you guys out there watching this type of media, you're technically outliers. And I mean that in the sense that you come to alternative platforms such as Rockfin in order to get, um, I would say, a deeper reality. Like you're looking for meaning in life through a specific uh, filter and you don't want it to be on YouTube and you don't want it to be through a lot of the larger uh, facets, right? Oh, I think our audio is not the way it should. Let me just see if I can turn that up. Uh, give me two seconds here, guys. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. See, good Good that I caught that. So uh, what happened? I know sometimes Hi. it's like today was there we go. All right, let's start again. Now the audio is loud and clear, <laughs> so uh, it was, it's it's been of a it's been of a fun day today. So, like I said, I changed a couple of things around. Maybe almost killed yourself with the chainsaw. I almost killed myself with the chainsaw. <laughs> yeah, I'm wearing my uh, my my lumberjack uniform today, um, and uh, so we had we did a couple things before the show that maybe we should have tested, and maybe uh, the microphones were the volume of the music. I hope that came out loud and clear. That uh, that uh, heavy metal music video that was, uh, as I mentioned a second ago, I'll say it again because now our volumes are proper. Um, that was an old band of mine. It's still a current band of mine. It's a solo project called Felmuth, and that song Paradigm focuses on the idea of uh, being an outlier. That we have we we live in this paradigm now where. Um, People like you, you guys come to this platform, to Rockfin, because you want to see life through a filter that you're comfortable with. You're not comfortable, most likely. I mean, that's why I came to Rockfin, right? Uh, not comfortable with YouTube. Mm. Not comfortable with Facebook. I'm not comfortable with all these things. It's just, it's too much garbage. I just, I'm not interested in it anymore. And so therefore I land, I find a place like Rockfin where I find the, the hosts far more humbling. I find that, uh, you know, People just talk and have conversations, and it's so much more relaxing and enjoyable for me, right? And the idea in that 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 video, that song that I just played, is that unfortunately, when you choose to be different, you know, in contrast to the mass, let's say ninety nine percent of the people plus on this planet, they they they, they want YouTube, you know, they they don't want Rockfin, and so the people who stand out and say, you know what, I want something else, we do stand out. And it's important to remember that because it's kind of like uh, this idea that uh, that old Chinese proverb, uh, an old coach of mine um, told me, oh, we have, uh, yeah, someone's already telling us that our volume wasn't loud enough. So we fixed that. Hopefully it's all good now. Um, it's a proverb that says the, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. Mm -hmm. And it translates to, you know, if you have a board and a nail sticks down, you're going to smash it. So um, if you're going to be that nail that sticks out, it's always kind of nice. It's always uh, good to know that that because you stick out, the hammer might come for you. And I have a feeling, and this kind of goes into what we're talking about today, trust in the calling. I have a feeling that platforms like Rockfin and many other alternative medias, we make ourselves vulnerable because we choose to stand out and we don't, and we want to separate ourselves from the group, which is a healthy thing. Shouldn't stop. I, you know, I, I, I definitely think I want to live my life the way I want to live, and I'm not going to sacrifice um, to be able to please, let's say, not the masses, but uh, a system put mm. in place that's not really meant, I think, for humanity. It's meant for an oligarchy, and it's meant for an empire. And I'm not. I don't really want to play into empire, right? So today, trust in the calling. It's obviously 
a funny play on words because we've heard all too much trust in the science. Maddie, do you trust in the science? Not anymore. <laughs> Not anymore. Now, you say that. You say that. But why don't you, uh, you know, refresh the people out there who are listening to us. What do you do for a living? And what's what's your education? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, what I'm doing for a living, I'm a biologist and I have a PhD in biology as well. So I was into science for a long time. <laughs> And I was a scientist. I think I, I'm still a scientist because science for me means to be open to discover new things, to answer questions, you know, very objectively. But what I experienced when I was in, at university, in not only in Germany, but also in different places uh, of, on the world, of the world, was that it's, it's a very biased business <laughs> it's a business also yeah science is a business and if you're not willing to to give up like a lot of of like yeah if you if you're not dedicated your life to this type of of, of life i don't know even how to explain it it's, well you've mentioned in the past that yeah. it, it seems to be that science as we call science today seems to be very socialist and in the sense that um publish or perish it's more about mm -hmm. your image it's more about fitting into a larger group also it's not not like you know you think like oh i'm interested in something i go there and i'll start working on that topic mm -hmm. but rather what is it the people want to know right now so what is kind of in <laughs> yeah because you know you you want to somehow also make a living from it at least you want to you know be able to survive a little bit on your salary and yep. as a scientist there are not so many options either you have a position that is you know offered with a project that is pretty much fixed mm -hmm. on topics that are in right now or yep. you are able to apply for funding which also you have to write a project you know you have to apply for something and you have to give them a project proposal which also if you're not fitting in the the framework, if you're not using the techniques that are really cool, <laughs> that everyone is kind of, you know, using right now, the genetics and all that, then you won't get the funding for it. Right. So my my project was merely really behavioral biology, which is, it's, it's like a kind of an, an science on extinction, I would say, you know, because... Nowadays they say, well, you know, you just can't go out and observe animals. Like, mm -hmm. what, what, what will that tell you? No one will fund that anymore. Rather, they give you money for genetics, for radio tracking, all these kind of things. And yeah. eventually, I'll just ask myself, you know, specifically in biology, why do we need all these data? I don't need to convince myself that nature is crazy. You know, that and nature awesome, is yeah. amazing. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't need to collect all these data to prove that over and over again. Also not needing to prove that, you know, certain things that we do to the environment are harming mm -hmm. other animals. I don't need to prove that. I know that. Yeah. I think that so. the perversion is when we're told what's actually harming the environment, what the environment is, and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. That's that that's something that we can always debate. So well, maybe just to yeah, to summarize, you know, when I started, I was very trusting in the system. Right. I thought, you know, this is a good place for me. Everyone wants to be where I am right now. Yeah. Everyone, you know, is like you saw your professors and put them on a pedestal. Absolutely. Right. You know, I thought like, wow, one day I'll be there too. <laughs> I'll, and it, it has a lot to do also with, you know, like ego and status, being a, a PhD student, later on a postdoc. Um, you get more and more responsibilities, you're leading a team and all that. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of perversion involved in that whole system that I was not able to see when I started. And later on, it was almost too late for me to pull out because I was already so sick from it. Right. Now, the definition of science, well, how would you define science? 
Oh, you know, someone asked me that actually not that long time ago. I don't know. Well, 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 you give my, us your, my your, answer. Your, contemplating you're like, on that. Yeah, you're like off the top of your head answer. I'll pull up a couple actual definitions. Yeah. And we'll 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 see we'll see what it feels like because I think that the word science has been it, it, it's in turmoil, right? It's no longer it used to be, in my opinion, uh, from the way I learned it back mm -hmm. in school. Whether it's actually like that when you look at it online, uh, in an online yeah. definition of a dictionary, I. I kind of want to get some of my older dictionaries that I have lying back in North America mm. because I want to compare them to the results I get online today. Well, and I would before you go oh, on, okay. mm -hmm. I just wanted to say that the way I remember science being taught to me in school was it is a process of um, hypotheses, mm -hmm. experimentation, conclusion, and dis discerning what a fact is. And a fact, yep. the way I learned it back then, was also uh, a, a real event, which means that it was like in the scientific world, a fact is something that happened uh, the, uh, as a result of an experiment, and it's the way that you're measuring it. But if the experiment wasn't done properly, then the fact changes. And this is why mm -hmm. sometimes you conduct the same experiment over and over again, mm -hmm. because you do get different results. Mm -hmm. And each result is a fact in and of itself. So... Tell us what, what you think science is yeah, today. I, I also just had the word of like a process mm -hmm. in mind that is there in order to discover questions, in order to find out, you mm -hmm. know, well, finding answers to questions that you have, no matter it's biology or chemistry or whatever. And then you start with a hypothesis, you see a phenomena in, in, in our everyday life and you're like, hmm, why is it like that? Right. And then you start, okay, maybe it's because of that. And then you test for it and then you see, well, you know, it's not because of that. What else could it be? Right. And so step by step, you go through different settings in order to prove or find find the most... To learn about, the, yeah. Yeah, to learn about and find the most likely explanation for this phenomena. Right. But, I have here a definition, mm -hmm. and uh, the definition comes from my just quick search on DuckDuckGo. What is science? Mm -hmm. And the result is science is a systematic endeavor that builds and organizes knowledge in the form of testable explanations and predictions about the universe. Hmm. And this, I go back to this a lot in this show that I say that it's science is there to give us a better connection to reality and the universe. We say this over and over again, and I think yep. that's, that's way too forgotten today because we live in a bubble mm. and we try to exclude ourselves from the universe, right? Um, the earliest written records of identifiable, uh, identifiable predecessors to modern science come from ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia around mm -hmm. 3000 to 1200 mm -hmm. BCE. Yeah. Right? So that 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 kind of goes into what I learned originally. What is science? Science yeah, is a, it's a scientific process. It's not what we today call uh, I, it's, today it's more of a, of an ism. It's a it, it's scientism, not scientism, because that's already taken, unfortunately. But scientism is really more of a religion, and it's not, and it's and it's a form of consumerism, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So um, that being said, how do you trust then in like in, in the scientific <laughs> process today? Do you feel the scientific process today does a good job of displaying? the universe and reality well i can only speak from my experience as a biologist and from what well, i give seen. us both give us yeah, yeah your experience as a biologist but also from you as a subjective yeah human <laughs> <laughs> right because like, i think i think it's cool to see the difference yes so first as a biologist um first as a biologist so as i said in the beginning i, I trusted that process you know and I I did my best to to really pursue research that I would say my the results that I got are valuable and are trustable. Mm -hmm. 
and that that the the research I produced is something that adds to the to a greater knowledge. So, but then you know, looking back, and also seeing my colleagues back then <laughs> working, since we were all under a lot of pressure in right. that whole system. I would say that a lot of, of these approaches were either too, you know, not not well planned enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the way science approach is not always it's it's done the, without meaning uh, or reason. Yes, but also just like if you want to answer a question and you set up something that you you know you can't answer this question. Does it mean that this question is unanswerable? Like you can't mm -hmm. answer this question or is it just because of you not thinking right about it? You know, it's like if you want to prove something mm -hmm. and you think, oh, well, if I, you know, have this this experiment and that experiment, well, I'll just give you an example. Maybe it's easier. Um, from behavioral biology, there's there was always um, the idea that certain species of monkeys are mm -hmm. not so clever. You okay. know, they're just not clever enough. There, and there's that one test where they 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 show a monkey um, like a banana or something through a cage, and then the 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 monkey can't grab it, mm -hmm. but he, there's a stick. So the monkey grabs the stick. Has to figure stick, out the stick to get the banana. Yeah. You know, gets it on. And then they did that the test with several monkey species, and mm -hmm. they're all passed except the the gibbons. Okay. They failed, and so it was like, well, they must be stupid. You know, they didn't mm. get it. But um, they forgot about that the gibbons have different hands. They are apes that hang actually from the tree and they're right. not grabbing things like that. Right. So even they, they, they couldn't grab the stick in order to, to get the banana to them. For them, they actually had mm -hmm. to change the whole experiment and they had to give them something where they could actually hang on to right. and pull so in order to get the food. And this is just like a little example how you always have to think, you know, how do I have to design an experiment in order to get right. the answer that I'm looking for? And I'm sure that in but maybe 80% of right, the... You said it right there. Yeah. The answer that you're looking for. Yes, that's the one thing. But again, you know, like in that specific situation, you wanted to know, are these apes able to figure out how to get to the banana without, you know, being able to grab to it? Yeah. And this is just one little aspect. Trying to measure a form of intelligence. Yeah, this is just one little aspect. And from you know, from that experiment, when I say, oh, okay, that gibbon is not able to grab the banana, that mm -hmm. species must be stupid. So they kind of draw an, ex uh, an, an conclusion. A conclusion from right. an experiment just looking at a tiny little mm -hmm. sliver. You know, just like be a behavioral intelligence is like a huge. There's so much to it. Not right. only if you're able to figure out how to grab the food without your hand. But so many more aspects to it, and I've I've seen it so many times that you know there was a generalization out of an experiment that just gave you one little aspect of a right. huge aspect. So what what about statistics? I mean, statistics oh, yeah, being a big thing. part of yeah, it is a, it is another thing. But statistics being a well, so before yeah. actually let's do the statistics part first, and let's get sure. your opinion uh, of of trust of of what you feel science is as a as a person. Yeah. All right. So statistics obviously is uh it, it it's what is produced by the scientific process, right? It's something that. Um, we can correlate from what has been learned. Now, yeah. the way that science is often presented, specifically when we're talking about specific sciences, mm -hmm. like you do the same experiment 
50 times like you know that was the thing maybe not every monkey maybe some of the gibbons you know mm, what i mean like yeah, yeah. maybe if they had a larger data set they would have seen different results there's, and yeah and and there's always that like how how accurate can you depict an entire species based off of one animal that was probably raised in a cage mm -hmm. so uh, what does that even mean right yeah well i can i can say right away from I, I've read a lot of studies during mm. my PhD and also later on with writing my books and all that. And I can't tell you how many studies I found that made no sense. No sense. Like nothing. Like nothing. Like right. I would say 50% of I think <laughs> the that studies that I read, the either it was the design, the experimental design, or right. it was the statistics, or it was both. And mm -hmm. it is something that, you know, specifically the statistics... It is a very complex topic and there's nothing yeah. that you can just like learn like that. And I had to put a lot of effort in to, to understand it myself. Yeah. Still to that day, you know, some of these tests that I did, I still can't really explain to you what, what was going on in these yeah. tests. And I also encouraged you to, well, not encourage you, but I said, you know, you don't really know, need to know what's happening in that test. You will just take mm -hmm. that test once you have these kind of data. So... On one hand, you know, specifically applying that to very young students that try to make it easy for them in, to 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 learn statistics, right. to simplify it. But on the other hand, because of that simplification, mm. I think a lot of mistakes are are done, and I've seen it a couple times. And maybe on purpose, you know, mm -hmm. that's the other question. If some people just like tune their data a little here and there, yeah, yeah, yeah. or um, not on purpose, just because you don't know any better. And yeah, it's. I think it's just so much more complicated than the average person could think of how all these statistics work and all these different tests and the quality of data. There's so yep. many aspects going into that, how many um, you know samples you have, if these samples are normalized, and then you can have a couple mm -hmm. things in order to normalize them. So it is... Endless. <laughs> right. I, I, it goes back to, for me, I'm thinking of the last episode we put out about uh, Contagan, you know, the, mm -hmm. the drug that uh, was brought to us by a company that that this drug had killed thousands mm -hmm. and crippled, uh, t assuming they estimate 12,000 people worldwide. Mm -hmm. And um, it's interesting because there was something about that where they actually put a warning on the label. Because they wanted to just make one warning label that they can ship to every country, mm -hmm. because it's a lot cheaper than having to rewrite everything. So if you, so oh, if yeah. you, you make oh, a yeah, picture, mm -hmm. you know, like everybody pretty much understands a stop sign and the words STOP, STOP stop mm -hmm. sign is actually a, a UN symbol, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Like you see this in every country mm -hmm. except for East Canada because they're mm -hmm. idiots. They oh, also, the poison sign, right? It's also the same thing. No, well, what I'm saying is, yeah. is that in, in French Canada, they chose to be assholes about the language and say that nope, the stop sign is going to say arrête. And so their sign are the only signs I know in any Western world that says arrête instead of stop. Like they actually translated it and they said that like the, the French Canadians were actually butthurt and offended that English words would be written bigger. So there's a law in French Canada where every sign, the French writing has to be double the size. Hmm. of the English writing. And I learned this the hard way because with my band, you know, we'd sometimes rent a truck and we'd drive through the city. We get stopped by the police and we'd be given tickets because hmm. we would we would get a U-Haul from Ontario or from wherever, hmm. drive it to Quebec and they say, nope, that truck is uh, doesn't meet our... So they have a language police. 
right? <laughs> it's, it's brutal. My, my father, he, same thing. He used to deliver uh, cakes and pastries to uh, Montreal and he would get nailed by the language police every time he drove from Ontario. So it just, it, it just wasn't worth it. He had to actually calculate that into, uh, into his trip. Different yeah. story. But the Different reason why story. I'm talking about this is because Kantegan decided to, or the company um, Grunenthal, um, they decided to make a, a, a picture of a pregnant woman and a no sign on it. And mm -hmm. so what happened was the people, I heard specifically in Brazil, that um, they, they thought that it was supposed to help uh, like the morning after pill. Like it was, a, it was, it was like a type of, uh, of um, uh, prophylactic for mm -hmm. getting pregnant, that it would help them prevent, it would help prevent them from getting pregnant. Ah, yeah. But the symbol was supposed to say, don't take the drugs when pregnant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and so they were taking it to not be pregnant. Mm -hmm. And yet they were just falling asleep. Mm. <laughs> so it's a funny, weird thing. But like, obviously, when you simplify stuff too much, it becomes misunderstood. Another mm -hmm. classic example is the is the automotive industry today. Mm. It used to say, um, caution, seats recline. Now it says, um, be careful, seat moves backwards, right? You know, like, or mm -hmm. seat moves back, like, because that too many people who have English as a second language don't understand caution or recline, Right. Yeah. And so for this reason, the languages change and evolve. But you're saying in science that a lot of uh, statistics and uh, they've been simplified so that uh, earlier like students who are graduate students can maybe publish more papers or what's the reason you think? Yeah, I don't know, like not simplify, but yeah, mm, you know, you learn in university the tests, but at that point, they don't really tell you a lot. You have to use data in order to understand what these tests doing and when are you using them and all that. Right. So once you start your PhD and also your master thesis, then this is the first time you actually are confronted with statistics. Yeah. And depending on how nice your supervisor is, you know, either they do it for you or just they, they help you. <laughs> or you find or they another leave you alone. They leave you totally you. alone with it. And then you uh. have to figure out what you're going to do. But just one more anecdote to that. You know, I was publishing a lot of, or yeah, a lot of, a couple papers, you know, already yeah. have a couple papers. And I've experienced it so many times that the statistics we did in the paper was, you know, so the, maybe just to the process, like um, the paper is accepted through a re review process. So you have a couple other scientists to have mm -hmm. a look at it. And they say, you know, this is good or this is not good. And the same paper was accepted from one, one reviewer and completely denied from someone else because they say, you know, they said, well, the statistics is bullshit. But the mm -hmm. other said, no, yeah, great statistics. So just going to show you how different the opinions are about. And even in my my defense and my PhD defense, right. you were there too. Yeah. I I already had my papers published, you know, all this data was published. So that meant not only my supervisor had a look on it, but yeah. also other PhD, uh, other um, scientists. And yet still in the defense, there was one guy who didn't get it, who didn't get it. And also said, well, you can't just do the regressions. That doesn't work. <laughs> I, I never, I never liked when he, you know, my supervisor did that. He, <laughs> so, he, he had his own way of doing he things. He had his own right? way of doing things. And I was like, yeah, well, so what's then, you know, what is the truth here? So how, yeah. how are you going to do this then? Yeah. yeah. And, and it's funny because he's supposed to be judging you and the other. I remember the other uh, uh, um, professors who were judging <clears> your dissertation 
they're they're looking at him and they're saying, "No, it's okay. I don't think you understand." And as soon as one of them says, "I don't think you understand," all of a sudden, all they all they all start sitting up straight and looking around like robots. You yeah. know, it's, and so it was really funny that uh, that that was a thing. You got a good mark anyway on the on the dissertation. The, uh, but the oral I, exam was good, yeah. Exactly, but I, I, I still remember to this to this point, like he was still like trying to, to blemish <laughs> your 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 examination, and he wouldn't let it go. He wouldn't let it go. But nevertheless. Um, how do you as a person, as a human, as Madeline, uh, feel about science and uh, mm -hmm. the universe and trusting it and all that stuff? Like, I mean, what's what's your experience now? Yeah, so now it's a completely different experience, but it has a lot to do with me opening up to the possibility that, you know, there's more that we can grasp with our logic understanding. Right. Back then when I started my PhD, I was not very spiritual, you know, I was very logical. There, right. I could only believe things that I could see, hear and smell and measure. So things like, you know, spirits and all that was not existing for right. me. That whole yep. world was not non-existent. And if would someone would told me this exists, you know, it's like I say, well, no, I, I'm, I don't believe in it. So I didn't believe mm -hmm. in it and I was not, um, yeah. But then I started opening myself up for that possibility. And as you said, it has a lot to do with experience, yeah. how I experience my world. And, and that's that's actually our, we as a scientific yeah. uh, resource, what we subjectively yeah. experience in the world, these are our facts that we use yeah. to build uh, a relationship to the universe. And I realized, you know, if I'm trusting my experience and my intuition rather mm -hmm. than always my logical um, understanding, then my life got much better. So I I made decisions that are that way better for me and my health became better. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, science is a, just the, the, the general concept of science is amazing because we as human beings or creatures, creatures here on the earth, we want to know how everything right. works. This is a very, very... It, very how you say that like um, an instinct of us to figure things out we just want to figure out things <laughs> yeah yep. that's why science will always be there I think it's just like the way it's it's pursued nowadays in universities is it's a just, religion it's a religion yeah and it's also exploitation of the the, the young scientists the, the young yep. minds and yep. you know they're they're the beginning open and I just talked to 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 someone in my working group. She also is a she she studied uh, history and also wrote her PhD in history. Mm -hmm. And she said she had the same experience than I. And she said she would have never imagined this system to be so horrible right. with these people suppressing each other and really. Is it's just heartless? It's heartless, and you you drowning if you were yeah. like a it's, normal it's, human being in there. Yeah. And it was so interesting to talk to her because it was a different field, you know, but yet the same experience that we we both had independently. Yeah. It's funny because I mean, when I think back uh, to things like alchemy, you know, f uh, previous versions of science, mm -hmm. I would almost call it. It's not really previous. It's still very mm -hmm. relevant today. Um, but the alchemy had a lot more spiritual content mm -hmm. built into science, right? So they they had yeah. this idea of uh, um, ethereal stuff, yeah, right. And I think that over the last um, century, that's been dropped. I want. I, I'm going to come back to that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get into the meat of the show for now. Mm -hmm. Is there something else you want to say? Yeah, I just want to add up yes, <laughs> on on that level. Uh, for me, science, I, I would, I still consider myself to be a scientist. Absolutely. You know, I'm very interested still in, mm -hmm. in biology and, and all that. I'm still writing on papers and data, but yet I would not approach things the way I did when I was a PhD student. Right. 
nowadays I find my answers somewhere else, not by measuring and observing mm -hmm. things, but really just experiencing, open myself up and see what's there. And I have to say I'm very into um, the shamanic journey as one tool to get answers. Answers yeah. from, you know, spirits, answers from... I don't know if you want to say other dimensions. <laughs> no, sure. It doesn't matter where that comes from, but I can I can feel the difference of the quality of these answers. Being able to talk to animals to understand what it is that they actually want. Absolutely. I right? mean, how cool is that not to just watch and observe a rabbit to see what it's doing, but really, you know, opening yourself up to the possibility that you can talk to the spirit of that animal. and. Right this animal will explain everything to you in yep. a way that you would have never figured out on an experimental level. Yep. But yep. I mean, now I'm sitting here as a biologist and I can say that because, you know, I can feel safe here in that environment. Yep. But if I would go back to my university and say, you know what, I'm just talking to the rabbit. rabbit. I'm not observing it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> they would just put me into a mental uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> institution. And it's funny because, I mean, now subjectively, you seem to be actually having better results talking to animals than you do actually uh, trying to quantify their behavior. And I can tell you that things are not the way we think they mm -hmm. are. The yep. way we, we measure them or the, the way we are, you know, having research on, on that level, it's there's yep. so much more. That's why I'm also myself, I'm not really interested in reading research anymore because I know... I'll just go and ask myself. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You don't need to be so narrow-minded anymore. You have no. a, a whole new set of data that you're that you have exposure to now. And it's on one hand, it's nice. On the other hand, it's also a little sad because I think you know, this this opportunity is there for everyone out mm. there, and yet we're spending so much money on on you know, and then just like are trapped in our logic understanding that 90% of the people out there will never have that access and mm -hmm. never experience that. And it's such a such a profound and wonderful experience because it connects you and to, yep. to, to the world and to everything around you. You know, it's funny when we think to um, your PhD uh, thesis, you were in Frankfurt and you were observing the rabbits and what you were trying to do was to discover why the rabbits were leaving the countryside and, and moving into the city. And you asked, you know, what about the quality of life? Is it better or worse uh, between the two and what's going on? Mm -hmm. And it's funny because in the cities, they have programs for culling the um, pestilent populations. Yeah. And this is going to segue really nicely into what we're talking oh, about yeah. today, because <laughs> yeah. by calling the pestilent uh, populations, it comes with a predetermination of what you believe is a pest and why. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I remember mm. that the people in Berlin and the people of Frankfurt, uh, these are two cities that had a lot of uh, rabbits running around, um, had different opinions. You know, mm -hmm. some of them loved seeing the rabbits out mm -hmm. front in the in, in the parks, and they can go play with their cats, and you see rabbits running around like you'd see squirrels. Yeah. Uh, others hated it because uh, they dug holes and you'd trip in them, and uh, they 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 would uh, ruin the tulips. You know, these kind of things. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, and yeah. so it was a big problem in the city because it was a very divided thing like people were divided on mm -hmm. the idea of what is it a pest or not and unfortunately for the rabbits those who are in you know in the position of making decisions they had the op opinion that the rabbits are just causing too much damage and there are mm -hmm. too many of them so they started hiring the hunters to reduce the numbers thin the herd over and over again and the way they yeah. reduced the numbers in the cities were by hunting them to over 90 percent death and the rabbits would because that's how they do it with the boars over mm -hmm. here 
Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it that way. So I was working together with the hunter who actually was responsible for that. And mm-hmm. what he said, he, he tried to keep, well, I think it was 80%. So he killed 80% of the rabbits from one borrower system. So he kept yeah. 20% in it in order okay. to, you know, not... But still, that, kill them all. But still, it's it's a lot of. And for, lot for of you rabbits. as a biologist, what does that do to the genetic diversity for the future when it comes to being resilient to diseases and 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 so on and so forth? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you if you reduce a population on that level, mm-hmm. like you as you said, you thin out the herds, and it is also a very. Um, well, the one thing is it's very unselective, so they mm-hmm. kind of you know they're not we're not only hunting down the 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 old ones or the, right. the sick ones mm. but everyone even not not the young ones they had their hunting yeah. seasons right so only in um, october till march when the young were already gone but yet everyone like the females yeah. the males there was all the same probability yeah. for them to get hunted so on that level it was not really a bias but yet if you reduce a population on that level and there are only a couple left over generations that will come more and more similar to each other because they yeah. have always the same parents, right? Mm-hmm. And if a population is highly inbred, then they're very susceptible to like diseases mm-hmm. and also um, yeah, changes in your environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, they can't adapt as well anymore. Yeah, the yeah. Prob- uh, the probability of extinction is uh, much higher in, in small populations with high inbreeding rate. Right. Yeah. Well, let's shift focus over to humans now. From because, rabbits to humans. Yeah, well, you know, run, <laughs> run, rabbit, run. Uh, the idea of trust in the calling is what I wrote down for today. And I did that. And for those of you watching the video version right now, you can see we have this... Uh, collection of faces Mm. and there's a reason why these faces are on here and i'm going to get to that it's actually a very surprising reason i think Uh, a lot of people don't know about this story and it's a it's a personal story of mine and how i came across this and how i discovered it but trust in the calling is the idea now that there are a group of people many groups of people out there actually because right now when you look at how um environmentalism and ecology is even used today the the whole idea of even uh, um, climate control uh, or or uh, what are they calling it? Uh, global warming and all this kind of shit. Climate change. It's it's not pointing at a problem that needs to be solved. It's always inevitably pointing back to humans with the idea of let's call the population. The problem is the people. Mm-hmm. The, you know? And so what I came across years ago was something that's called the Good Club. And for those of you guys out there who have never heard of the Good Club, it's it's quite a it's quite a thing. It's it's a collection of billionaires, right? That um, got together as philanthropists, right? Philanthropy in quotations, rabbit ears, uh, <laughs> to change the world, to analyze the biggest problems on the planet, and come together and and offer a solution. Mm-hmm with their incredible finances and resources, Mm -hmm. right? And so this is uh, from The Guardian. Now, there's a mosquito there. Now, years back, I think this was back in 2009, if I recall, around May, if I remember correctly. Uh, Yeah, May 20th, 2009. This article came out, and I remember... Physically, I don't really read newspapers. It's it's not a thing, right, for me. I just I, I I was never interested. I found that it was just too 
it was it, the the view that the newspaper put into people's minds of reality i never liked i never enjoyed it right and so therefore i a friend of mine his father back in um when i was living in toronto um his father delivered the national post and the guardian and um a whole bunch of other newspapers and stuff like that and i i just remember that uh his like the papers always had to be delivered at nighttime, you know, between the hour, and it had to be on everyone's doorstep, uh, specifically in the office buildings, uh, by like six or seven o'clock. And so my friend's father had the keys to all the skyscrapers mm. in, in downtown Toronto. And for those of you Americans out there who want to know what maybe downtown Toronto looks like, it, it, it's, it looks a lot like Chicago. Uh, it's, it's like a mixture between, actually, it looks more like Boston. It's like Boston like the the population size is is greater than chicago but the um the buildings and everything it's like a weird condensed form of boston and new, and new york city and when i say condensed it's because the earth up in toronto is so hard that they're able to build skyscrapers right beside one another it's actually really creepy to see mm -hmm. a building with like 150 stories mm -hmm. beside another building with 150 mm -hmm. stories and they're only like 20 but maybe like 50 50 to 100 yards away from one another they don't they're not separated as much as they are in new york city right they're they're much more mm -hmm. close together and mm -hmm. so this is why toronto had all these huge buildings like the CN Tower that was massive, like all these structures were able to be held in that in that heavy earth that's that, that exists over there. This, the reason why the earth is so compact over there has to do with the ice age that uh, it pushed it down, which is why Niagara Falls is not too far away. It's it's the the earth is slowly expanding, you know, uh, with the years. And so it was it was kind of a it was a really fun feeling, you know, when I was younger. Um, so when I was really young, like we're talking like two thousand or uh, so, I would go with my friend's father to work. And uh, we'd we'd go up and uh, up and through the skyscrapers, and, and just we had keys, so we just had fun. So I'd be going into all the like <laughs> like the, um, the the business district in downtown Toronto, and we'd have keys to go throughout all the skyscraper elevators and go through all the floors. I remember I sat in the chair of I think the uh, uh, NBA CEO because they had every Fortune 500 has uh, a ch like a, a floor in in uh, in some of these buildings, like 181 Wellington. I remember was the big one of the bigger ones down there, um, and I remember. <laughs> breaking into the NBA floor and sat and sat in like the main chair and all that stuff and uh, had, had a little bit of fun there for 20 minutes. And um, then later on, um, because I knew how to do the paper routes and stuff like that, because my friend and I, we were students, we were going to school and all that, but we just enjoyed the nighttime. I, that, that was the mm. big thing to actually go and experience a city when it's dead, like between the hours of like three and 5 a.m., and you have the keys to the biggest buildings. It, it was it was a bit enthralling for me, right? So I, it was I, I enjoyed it. I, it was an excitement factor, actually. It was also very relaxing. I found. And uh, so later on, years later, around two thousand nine, my friend's father asked me if I can overtake uh, for a, f a few weeks or like a month uh, a paper route for some of these large skyscrapers. It was for a friend of his who uh, was Romanian and his grandfather was dying and he wanted to go, or his father was dying and he wanted to go back to Romania and see him before he died and all that and take the family. And um, I didn't want to do it. I had a lot on the go, right? I had a lot of stuff to do, but the guy was just like, oh, come on, there's nobody else out there that can actually overtake my, my paper route. It's just mm. not possible. And so I did it. Anyway, and um, I just remember getting the New York Times and the Guardian and the National Post and seeing that I think it was the, the, the Guardian and the New York Times had this article 
in it. And this is how I came across this article. Hmm. And I remember retaining this information for all these years and nobody ever spoke about it. It never really hit the mass media. Some people know about this. Some do. But it, 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 this is something that I think should be really more scrutinized. So let me read the, the, top, uh, the top part here. I'll get rid of uh, our camera so we can now show it to everyone. They're called the Good Club and they want to save the world. Paul Harris in New York uh, reports that on a small elite group of billionaire philanthropists who met recently to, discover, to discuss solving the planet's problems. When was recently? 2009, <laughs> as I mentioned. Oh, okay. Good. Um, and so it says here, it is <laughs> the most elite club in the world. Ordinary people need not apply. Indeed, there is no way to ask to join. You simply have to be very, very rich and very, very generous, as they say, mm -hmm. on a global scale. This is the good club. The name is given to a tiny global elite of billionaire philanthropists who recently held their first and highly secretive meeting in the heart of New York City. The names of some of the members uh, are familiar figures. Now, they didn't write down all the names here. So what mm -hmm. I'm going to do right now is I'm going to go over to the picture that I created for today. And lo and behold, this is the good club, at least the one in 2009. I don't know if it's changed or if they've recruited because they don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's really hard to find information about this uh, this little cult, club, group, whatever. Um, so we have Bill Gates, Soros, Buffett, Rockefeller, Turner, Bloomberg, Eli Brode with his wife, Edith Brode, Oprah Winfrey, Peterson, Robertson. I can't I have to look at his big his full name there. Um, I'll, I'll pull that up in a minute. John Morkridge and his wife, um, Tasha Morkridge and uh, Stonecipher. And um, these people, I, I want to go through them just one at a time, just to mm. give you guys a flavor of, okay, so we have a group of philanthropist billionaires coming together to save the world. What are they? What are they doing to save the world? I think that's the first question that any logical person um, would ask: Is okay, so these people with all this money think that money solves all the problems on the planet, and they want to solve the world's problems. So, mm -hmm. have you ever heard of anything like this? I mean, you growing up in school and going to school here for so many years, did you hear about a lot of these groups and foundations? Because now you work for a foundation, mm -hmm. and you can see the way that kind of politics happens behind closed doors. And how what we call palms are being greased by mm -hmm. the way that finances are being moved in the fashion with in a certain fashion with favors and mm -hmm. you know that kind of stuff. Um, why don't I'm going to look for a couple little parts in this article? Yeah. Tell, tell 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 the listening audience. I mean, for you now, how would you say how naive did you really grow up in the school system? Because <laughs> now you're now you're exposed to a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, specifically with the global warming and the energy crisis, as they call it. Mm. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience with that. Mm, it's funny because I was just thinking about my time in school and also, you know, yeah. like Say? coming out of school because uh, now in Germany, it's it's time for the, the teenagers for having their last exams to get their A-level, right? Mm -hmm. And so our office is next to a big school and all the, the kids, the teenagers were celebrating the last school day because now they only have the exams left. And mm -hmm. so they were all like partying. And I just remember when I went out of school, for me, it was just such a huge relief because I thought, you know, like, oh, well, finally, I, I can just do whatever I want. And also looking back, I mean, there were, were a couple of things I learned in school. I specifically enjoyed biology and arts, arts classes. But right. All the other stuff I, I barely need in my everyday life. And also, you know, a lot of things that we talk about or when I, when I met you and we, you know, you, you talked a lot about the things that you learned and, you know, 
many of these things I never heard of, about, you know, specifically more spiritual stuff or like mm. more, how you want to say that, like... Conspiracy. Conspiracy stuff. <laughs> yeah, something like right. that. And to my own surprise, many of these things, I thought like, yeah, absolutely, I can imagine them, you know. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not, not absolutely absurd to me. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if somehow I felt like, yeah, I think I, I always knew that there's more to it that, you know, yeah. we we know and what the papers are saying. So there's more yeah. going on. I um, I grew up around a campfire pretty much, you know, that was a big reoccurring part of my life. And <laughs> the conversations that take place around a campfire, specifically growing up in the 90s and the early 2000s, for me merit these types of discussions mm. you know the sun sets down everything yeah, yeah. that the noise has, has has stalled and all the critters they go to sleep um and then you're just left to sit there mm. and, and and look at a, a flickering flame as if it's from an ancient past you know and just mm. talk about reality and subjective reality yeah, you know yeah. and it became so important to me that i actually um, I, I couldn't really easily make it through. Like, I remember in my early 20s to get through a, a, a like a, a month, I had to at least have two or three good bonfires with friends. Mm. You know, I, I, for a long time, uh, myself and a bunch of Russian friends of mine, um, we would go out to a park called Old Mill Park and we had a bonfire mm. every weekend on Saturday together. And that was my Saturday night. So, I mean, I gave up all clubbing and Saturday night evenings to be able to go out and meet with these people and have a fire in the mm. in the forest beside a large river. And it was something like we even did in the minus 40 temperatures and all that. The women did come out for that. They were, <laughs> they were comfier at home. They like, I think that with men, uh, we can hold out the whole, the, the, that extreme cold uh, a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, when you're close to it and the fire's big, then uh, you stay warm, but uh, the, the walk back isn't as, uh, as uh, comforting. So it's just, it's something you get used to. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so what I have here, I just wanted to say is, uh, the part that I was looking for in this article, mm -hmm. right? And so talking about conspiracy and all that stuff, this is not conspiracy, what I'm showing you guys today. Mm -hmm. I mean, the conspiracy is what what what's the intention behind it, right? And it is a conspiracy because it's a group of people in a locked room. That's the definition of a conspiracy, right? <laughs> it really is. Uh, mm -hmm. So for six hours, the assembled billionaires discussed the crisis facing the world. Each was allowed to speak for 15 minutes. The topics focused on education, emergency release, government reform, and the expected depth of economic crises and the global health issues such as overpopulation and disease. One of them was, um, uh, one of the themes was new in ways to ordinary people to donate small amounts to global issues. Sources say Gates was the most impressive speaker, while Turner was the most outspoken. That's Ted Turner. He tried to uh, to uh, dominate, which I think annoyed some of the others, uh, said uh, one source. Winfrey, meanwhile, said um, to have been a, contemptive, a contemplative listening mood, right? Um, it goes on and on and on. I'm not going to read the whole article. It's a very fascinating article for any of you guys out there. I'll, I'll put this in the program um, uh, description for mm -hmm. later. So if you want to check it out later, you guys will see it there. And... Uh, the what they really came to a conclusion on was um, the biggest problem facing the world is overpopulation. Mm -hmm. That's what they decided to to focus on. Mm -hmm. And what's scary about this group is now when you look at the people involved, 
right? Um, they decided to say that uh, the global uh, so here just one of its projects, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, estimated by the WHO, who have prevented three point four million deaths. So it's funny that these same people who say that they're saving lives are saying the biggest problem on the planet are the lives that they are saving. And it's and it's this mm -hmm. weird like you you have to have what's called double think in order to make it through this text. It 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 doesn't make any sense. You know, mm -hmm. and and the more you look at these people, you know, the the Soros Foundation has done valuable work for setting up democratic institutions and independent media access in the former Soviet bloc. But isn't it interesting that they say, you know, like overpopulation is the biggest problem, but yet Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, it's as it said, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization just prevented 3.4 million deaths in just eight years. Yeah, How, like again, you know, this as a scientist. Where are the statistics of that these people that's were the going to die? That's the other point. I mean, how do you want to measure this, right? So, <laughs> exactly. How do you want yeah. to measure this? It's it, you, like when you read this kind of stuff, it's a mm. lot of big numbers, mm. you know, like millions here and millions there setting up a democracy and blah, blah. It, it's, it's, it's actually quite um, intense when you start to really see the way this newspaper, and this is in 2009, mm. right? And now when you take it into the modern era and you look at... Um, the, the people and what they've done with their time since then and what mm -hmm. they're responsible for. George Soros, I think, is is one of these monsters. I've heard people, I, you know, I, I read it in an article that psycho, psychopaths call George Soros a psychopath. You know what I mean? Like, he's, he's, he's that far out, right? <laughs> and uh, he's originally uh, Hungarian. Mm -hmm. Right, his original name was uh, last name was Schwarz, uh, and and he had that changed. Uh, I don't know why. And um, what he was known for—it's funny. There's no real—I I couldn't find a record as to where he got his money, and mm -hmm. that's actually kind of a bit of a question. I, I've I've heard a, a couple people ask. Mm -hmm. It's like there's no good, clear explanation. Mm -hmm. You know. Uh, here, let's see what we have. A uh, what the D Queen says. I am wondering how do they define or why do uh, they say we are overpopulated? That is an Excellent question. That is yeah. definitely something that I would like to uh, spend a little bit of time on, and I'm going to get to that. Uh, and it's it's on my list of things mm -hmm. because this is something that if you guys ask yourself, just as a quick little uh, note before we get into that topic later, if you just ask yourself, how many people do you know under 40 who have more than two kids? Mm. Females. How many females do you know under 40 that have more than two kids? That's that's we're going to we're going to come back to that right mm -hmm. because. Um, Two people, if, if like for every female, you have to have at least, they used to say 2.5 people born, right? Mm -hmm. um, in order to have population um, sustainability. And the reason is, is because not every person born is going to be one, uh, a female mm -hmm. that can actually have more kids. Itself, yeah. And not every per kid born is going to live to a uh, uh, sexual reproduction age or have kids. Mm -hmm. So this is why they used to typically say that 2.5 was that number. You know, if you take all the females in a country and you'd have to say you need to have 2.5 uh, people born per every female mm -hmm. on average for the population to be sustainable. Germany's like 1.4, like it's fucked. Mm. You know, it, it's really bad. You, and we're talking like you go to every Western country and you see that over and over. We're gonna get back at that because that's that's something that's that's definitely one of the biggest po problems that people assume overpopulation is a problem because the cities are becoming more and more crammed. Mm -hmm. You know, but we're gonna go into that too. Is like we 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 live in an area where it's just kilometers and kilometers of nothing other mm. than 
agricultural use around us. And there's there, nobody lives there. Maybe also to add, it's actually the same with the rabbits. You know, they also thought, oh, there's so many rabbits here, we have to reduce them. But yeah, they was only seeing the rabbits in the city that in Frankfurt and Berlin, there were so many because they had a lot of resources there. But if you looked into the countryside and if you looked in the yeah. whole Germany, the rabbit was actually on decline for many, many years. It's on a and, red list in some places. Yeah, and I was actually the first one really pointing that out because there's like, yeah, there's so many rabbits here. It's like, no, it's not true. <laughs> yeah, well, they came to the city yeah. because their natural habitat in the countryside was completely devastated. Mm. I mean, that's 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 the reason for migration, right? When the resources aren't there. Yeah. And it's the same reason why people are migrating into the cities. They migrate into the cities because the resources aren't in the towns anymore. It's actually, um, I, I, we wanted to, in this place that we live right here on the other side of this wall behind us is an old storefront, right? This used to be a supermarket, what we're sitting mm. in right now. <laughs> I bought a house with a supermarket and, uh, and a couple apartments in it. And um, it's it, we weren't allowed to open. Uh, we wanted to make like a little what would you call Tanta Emma shop in English? I get like a <laughs> like a like a type of not a grocery store, but like a, a regional grocery store. But at the yeah. same time, that had like a lot of cool things, and we were going to make some food. And you know, we were going to have a little storefront. And uh, thankfully, we didn't do it because um, what what happened was is they declined me to have the ability to do it here without having to invest like a quarter million euros into fixing up the whole property first. They didn't mm -hmm. want me to have, and, and legally they shouldn't be allowed to do that, but to fight that uphill battle when the, 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 the place you go to here to register whether your building is going to be an active job site or you're going to open a business in this location, mm -hmm. if, you, if you start going to these to these um, municipalities or whatever you want to call them in, in your areas uh, and talk to these people and they don't want it, it's you're swimming uphill. It's a battle, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I know this because later on I have some uh, forester friends in the area who then told me that friends of theirs were at, uh, you know, the city council. And it was it was pretty much stamped in paper that they said, we don't want any grocery stores or bars or uh, not bars, but we don't want any grocery stores or any type of, uh, or, uh, you know, like just a, a little stop and go shop in this town. And and they said, that's what the next town is for. We don't want it here. So when I came with my idea of what I wanted to do here, I bought this building because the building already had the permit associated to one sell alcohol and um, have like a stop and go shop. Right. Mm hmm. And unfortunately, because of the lobbying that's going on behind scenes, they're they're saying no. And it doesn't matter about the law when the, when the city council decides that we don't want it as a collective. And I'm thinking, I just bought this property and I can't use it for the reason why I bought it. Mm. You yeah. know, happily, good thing that we didn't do it because um, the whole COVID cack started like two months after I was declined the paperwork. So it's a good fucking thing that we didn't because we wouldn't have been reimbursed anything for opening the door and not being allowed to have customers, you know, mm. that so that, that, you know, we would have had to invest some money in order to make it work. Right. So it's a good thing we didn't do that. And now we both have different jobs. And so now this storefront is is is, is pretty much standing there naked. It's just empty and and this and it can't benefit anybody in this area. And every neighbor comes to me and they always ask me, so when's the store opening? And it's a shame because whatever the city council decided was a small group of people. And yet I run into person after person after person in our village asking me, we want a store here. Mm. Why isn't there a store here? And this is the, the pure definition of oligarch. A couple of people making decisions for everyone. It's not democratic. Nope. It's just they think it's best for the town. Just like this good club thinks it's best for the 
I, I, I don't even want to call it for the human race because they want to eliminate most of us. <laughs> uh, but for the planet, like, what does that mean? The planet's better when there are no humans on it? Like, it's, it's, it's unbelievable that this is what they're doing with their time. So as I was saying, Bill Gates, George Soros, Warren Buffett. Now, George Soros... Everybody knows who Bill Gates. Is. I'm just going to do a quick little topical thing of who these people are to give you paint you guys a picture, and then we're going to kind of, we're going to talk about the 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 main you know the main discussion of what is overpopulation, what does it mean, you know, really. We're going to go into that. Um, I, you guys, all all you have to do is go online and just type in Bill Gates, and you'll know about his past. A lot of you guys know him as the founder of Microsoft, right? It's more than that. It's it's way more than that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he uses his 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 money and extreme wealth to influence uh, trends, I would say, and he is is kind of like this Al Gore character who is of this of this opinion that the humans are the the worst resource on this planet. We're just diminishing everything. Um, that uh, look up and you will find a, a a a speech that he recently gave, and in this speech he said actually recently like five years ago I believe it was. He said exactly in his in 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 his words, um, you know, I'm paraphrasing obviously, that the biggest problem is overpopulation, and by using technology, artificial intelligence, and um, healthcare systems and vaccination programs, he said, I'm confident that we as a society can reduce the population safely by 15%. That's what he said. Safely. Safely. <laughs> but and, 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 and mm-hmm. you know, and people stood up clapping. And I'm thinking. You could be the one. <laughs> Who's the fifteen percent? Yeah, yeah. Right, and, yeah. and 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 so it's funny. It's 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 not considered genocide or murder if the people aren't born yet, and so that's that whole mm. idea is that if you're sterilizing a lot of people or you're using mass media to influence people to not want to have children to pursue careers instead, that uh, being a mother is a burden. No female should want this to make it more mm. difficult for women to want to have children because yeah, uh, you know what it's like in the university if you stop. To have children, you're out. You're you're out. You don't yeah. get. They don't say, "Oh, that was a have a nice year off. We'll mm. we'll keep your place open." Like you, in, as a biologist, you. Let's just say, for example, um, you did your PhD, and how long did it take you to do the thesis? Five years. Uh, almost seven in total. Seven years. Mm. Um, the average biologist will do four to five years. Yeah, depending like on the four topic. Four years, yeah, and if you have a paid position, it's like four years. Right, uh, and and you 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 did first off didn't have a paid position, and you had to collect a lot. You had to do a lot of field work, which is where the first you know that's mm-hmm. where a lot of the time goes. So some depending on the type of uh, thesis mm-hmm. you're doing, if you're doing a thesis that requires three years of data uh, gathering, mm-hmm. it's going to take seven years. If you do a uh, uh, one that's just like. You take a couple pictures and, uh, and 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 you look at the pictures and you're done. Like mm-hmm. then it's different. Or if the data is mm-hmm. already there for you and you're just correlating, it's it's a completely different thing. Um, but for you, um, you were about 35 when you finished your PhD, I believe, right? Yeah, must be. Right. Yeah. And so even if you did it mm-hmm. uh, and fast tracked it, what was the earliest you think you could have done? You would have been out of there maybe when 33, 32, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Around so 30, that means that you go out and get a, a, a proper education if you wanted to have a couple kids before mm-hmm. 32, 33 years old. Explain to the listening audience what that means as a female <laughs> becoming a doctor. Yeah. Wanting to have a couple kids. And you've seen this because you, you've, you've had friends of yours who didn't do their PhD because they had kids. 
you've run into these types of scientists. Explain that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, but not so many, I have to be honest. Like there were a couple because had, they don't want kids. Yeah, well, there were a couple that had their kids during their studies. So before right. the PhD were just, you know, when they were studying. And I think for them that worked out kind of well because back then when I studied, I was still doing the so-called diploma. And the diploma was I would say, you know, like not easy going, but you had a lot of more lot more time than if you would have done the bachelor or the master so it was not so condensed yeah but if you needed to take a couple year, uh, years well off, yeah of course you know if you want to have a, a kid and, and and it would just just prolonged everything and during the phd I, I don't know how you can can you can do your phd with so having a kid the, the question I, I really have is how accommodating is the scientific education not towards families not at all like i've, I've seen it a couple times there was one friend of mine, she was working not in, not not as a PhD, but she was working with me where I had my side job to in order to finance my PhD. And I was also in university, we were working in a graduate school. And so she had one baby and after two years, she got another baby. And she told my boss, like our mm -hmm. boss, and she said, what? Do you want to have another one? She really said that, you know, but well, that doesn't work right now for us. <laughs> for us. <laughs> you know, she was really like, no, no, now, this, this, this is not. I've seen, you know, it's yeah. an illegal thing to do to discriminate, as they say today, but mm -hmm. I've seen hiring procedures. Mm -hmm. And I know for a fact that if they look at a female that's at a fertile age, she's at the bottom of the list because they don't yeah. want to pay that. I, they I don't want to pay the fucking... I experienced it myself when I was in a committee for decision-making. You have to say job. you don't want kids and you have and, and that, you, that well, you're actively against it in order to ensure your position in certain companies. Well, we just said there were two women. One was 40 and she openly said that she doesn't want to have kids anymore and the mm -hmm. other one was mid-30. And so they said, well, you know, with the mid-30, we can make sure that, uh, you know, she'll probably have kids soon, so we'll take the other one. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. So and, the, the, and it happened. So it the, happened. the the reason why I'm saying this is that the mentality of the general public is even become now, as I was mentioning. You know, when we we're talking about Bill Gates a second ago, using things like technology and media and marketing and so on and so forth to change the people's opinions so that they don't want to have kids mm -hmm. is the way that they think they're going to be able to drop the population mm -hmm. down, right? <laughs> like what Feminator wrote. <laughs> it's like uh, me laughing. What did I can't really read it from here? Uh, yeah, I'll post it again. She yeah. said, Maddie laughing at how kids, uh, how to have kids before 30 says everything. It's, right? it's true. Like, uh, you know, even now I I wouldn't, I don't know how to fit in this in my right. everyday life because it's already right. so full. Yeah, and Dequeen says, a... exactly, because they're based only in cities. So she was talking about the uh, the population, the way that the, the, the population is not even yeah. like... We're talking about having kids in the cities. It's even more difficult when you uh, when you live out in the countryside because the only jobs you can harder, get yeah. in the uh, uh, in the countryside is you do you make your own job, your own business, mm -hmm. you know, um, or you work for like a grocery store or something, right? Like there's not yeah, there's yeah. not a lot left. And I'm I'm born here in that countryside. You know, I can see how things change. Yeah, in your our dad has his own business, in, and your mother works in a grocery store. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah, one yeah. to one. And also, you know, here in in Brandenburg, you have Berlin in the center of. Brandenburg kind of. Yeah, you know, it's like an embargo city state. The for the further you go from Berlin, it's called like the the bacon belt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I never thought of translating that. That's a that's a really good translation. <laughs> and the further you go, you can see that, you know, the the, the countries are empty. They're almost yeah. like 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 giving their houses away and, and giving them away yeah. for very low prices. Yeah. And maybe we talked about this today. When I was in Japan, you would think, you know, Japan is a very populated uh, country. Mm -hmm. 
It was in the cities, but I spent a lot of time in the countryside and they had to close schools because there were not kids anymore. Right. We, I was there for a conference and we had a post-conference excursion and we slept in one of these old uh, gymnasiums you right. know, for from that school because everything was just empty. It was like ghost cities. Right. It was crazy to see that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've heard that over and over actually about Japan that, you know, um, all the people and all the youth. They're in the cities. The same thing here where we live. You don't see people here between the ages of 20 and 40. Mm -hmm. Like just us. That's it. It's crazy, right? Mm -hmm. All the youth is in the city, right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, until high school, like what they'll typically do is they'll stay maybe close to the little uh, suburban household or, or, or um, small village household dwelling until they're done high school and then they're gone, mm. right? Because there are no universities and there are no good university programs for mm -hmm. people who live uh, outside of the cities. Yeah. And, and then the city traps you when you're going to university or you're yeah. doing uh, a, a, any type of an education because over here, if you're not going to university, uh, you're going to probably do something that's uh, that's called, how would you translate, Ausbildung? Like, um, mm, um, apprenticeship? Yeah, like an apprenticeship, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, would, you would do an apprenticeship at, at some type of job, whether you want to be a painter over here, you have to be apprenticed and get a license for that. I have, yeah, that's true. Uh, carpenter, uh, anything, even if you want electrician, electrician yeah. all that stuff, right? Cool. Um, and then you have all the, the, the other types of uh, apprenticeships that would be more like architectural work uh, in interior design and then you have all of the um, facilitating works like if you want to be, uh, be a trained uh, accountant or um, secretary and that kind of stuff mm -hmm. and it's and 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 these job programs are very difficult to find uh, out in the country I mean out in the country you're more likely to find a, a position to become an apprenticeship uh, painter or um, electrician mm. But uh, accountant and stuff like that, you're 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 gonna go to the city, you know. Like you, it just uh, anything to do with technology, you're gonna go to the city. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just they just don't have that infrastructure left over into the cities and in, in, in the in the villages anymore. Yeah, maybe just one last word to the kids mm -hmm. topic. You know, it's like I remember when I started studying, and also later on that our supervisors, you know, professors and all that, they kept saying, you know, like yeah. It, you know, pursue your career, keep going. You can have kids later, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it, it seems to be such a normal thing in, in for scientists to have their kids like with around 40 or something. Like now I have two friends who um, who just had their kids around, and one is 40 and the other one is 38 or something. Yeah. And... You know, now they're they're both like struggling because because of that, you know, they're not making enough money anymore. Right. They're in the middle of their postdoc and, and research. They don't know how to bring everything together. And now they're so stressed because yep. they either can't focus on their research nor having enough time for their kids. So they feel yep. double stressed. And it's it's just like, I don't know that this, this it shouldn't be like that. Yeah. Uh, Felmanator just said... Um that it's uh, illegal to interview. Uh, it's mm. it's an illegal interview question in Canada to ask whether someone has kids or wants kids soon. Well, it's interesting because what Madeline had said is that, and I've seen this over and over again, that when females are at an interview, they specifically say they don't want kids because they know behind closed doors. It's mm. not a question there uh, that's allowed to be asked. But if they go out of their way and say, I don't want kids, I'm against kids. You know, mm. as, as some people do nowadays. One of the ladies in her in her group said that she said that yeah. uh, she she doesn't want kids because they're bad for the planet. Like it's unfucking real. Like mm. the, these are people out of uh, out of university, and to say something that stupid is to me, it's it's it's, it's her, appalling. It's, it's it's her opinion. You know, this opinion is, how she, is fine, but the question is, is it 
really her opinion. That's what this show is about today. This show is about asking that question. When you have mm -hmm. these types of people running our our, our media, yeah. our press, uh, our technologies, uh, our government, our governments, yeah. really. If you're you know? just really repeating something that you heard somewhere. To be honest, like, I, you know, as I said, she's from my team now. She works mm -hmm. with us. She is a very uh, child-friendly person, I would say. You know, she always yeah. talks about the, the kids of her friends. And I would think, like, you know, maybe if she would be really, really honest, I think she uh, she would enjoy having yeah. kids. I think there's truth to that. I, I see that with a lot of women where no. they, they say they don't want kids and then honestly if they may, if they had yeah. the right circumstances absolutely and I, i've heard this over and over that yeah. a lot of women who followed that career path you know businesswoman mm -hmm. um life and then they had kids uh, after like a burnout or a breakdown or something like mm -hmm. that they just they just ask them they just say they should have done this earlier and uh, as yeah. a good example um so it, it was my family i have two sisters right and in my family it was uh, we we you know my and, and many of my friends where I grew up. Um, you stopped having kids when you were twenty five, mm. right? That was more <laughs> normal. You'd start having kids in your late teens and you'd stop in your mid twenties. Mm. And the reason is because by the time you're forty and your business is actually growing, your education is finished, mm. then the kids start. are old enough to actually help out with yeah. the house, help out <laughs> with life, go make money and actually pay rent. You know, this is the, this is the more classic yeah, approach yeah, yeah. to when you should have kids. It should True. be in your late teens, early 20s. That's when you're at the healthiest uh, uh, birthing age, right? Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. You, you know, the odds of you having some sickness or disease that prevents you from having a healthy pregnancy mm. is much lower. Yeah, um, I mean, just also, you know, from a personal um, personal point, like, you know, for about a couple mm -hmm. of years, we were thinking, okay, maybe we want to have some kids. And then I talked to my gynecologist and she said, yeah, what, you don't have that many years anymore. Yeah. You know, like me, now I'm, I turned 40 and I do, do see that there are uh, physical issues on, on that way, that it's mm -hmm. not that easy to, you know, just like get pregnant even when you're pregnant to to keep uh, the baby so yeah it's it's as you said you know if i would have knew that earlier despite the fact that i uh, never really wanted to have the kids the men i was with at that point <laughs> right <laughs> i had to meet the right person for that but yet absolutely out there if people you know like want to have a family don't think about it too much just go for it yeah, and this is something that you will find now with your what you were talking about earlier with the shamanic ideas, right? That um, you now feel things, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of instead of constantly trying to logically yeah. apply yeah. A, 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 a procedure to w whether you should make a decision or not, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think this is something when when you get thrown into a hard situation i know this from the type of work that i do like what i do for a living is finding problem or or putting you know, having problems and putting it together mm -hmm. so it's no longer a problem. You mm -hmm. know, uh, I, I'm, I'm a custom integrator. I find solutions. That's what I mm -hmm. do, mm -hmm. right? And um, it's the same thing with children. In the beginning, yeah, there's always a problem. That problem is, is like, what, what, what kind of food will they like? What, what, what color is the room <laughs> going to be? like their parents? <laughs> but these are problems because as you yeah. get through it, you develop creativity, you do develop yeah. intuition, you develop instinct. And I think that a lot of young mothers can attest to that, that the life experience that they've achieved by the age of 40 is far greater than the average person Absolutely. who has no children at all. I, I think that's the best experience ever to really just like, you know, um, also on a on a spiritual level because you know that kid is just mirroring your 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 life and your behavior mm -hmm. so 
so deeply that you have to face these things, you know, they'll just really show you yep. a lot of your, your demons and dark I, I sides. Believe, and... Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I've seen that. So uh, it's funny we're talking about overpopulation here because I come from a, a one, one side of my family is extremely large. Um, after World War II in Canada, there and in North America in general, there was what was mm -hmm. called a baby boom. That didn't happen in Europe. Mm -hmm. In Europe, you you had a baby. I don't want him. Boom. Like and, a little uh, boom, boom. <laughs> right? And so it was very normal in Europe because you couldn't afford to feed people. That people only had two, uh, you know, maybe two, maybe three kids, maybe mm. right. Like, uh, and 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 since World War II, population has been pretty much in decline here in in, in Germany, right? And if you look at um, larger families, like Catholic families growing up in North America, mm -hmm. as mine was, um, my uh, my mother is one of sixteen children, mm. right? And I know lots of people who are one of one of ten, one of seven, mm -hmm, so on and so mm -hmm. forth. And it's interesting because I mentioned how many people do you know today under forty who have more than two kids, women who have more than two kids. As I said, and, I don't know any. And and so now no. it's a mentality shift that has changed. Mm -hmm. It's not that there's something wrong with them. It's the structure of society obviously has 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 changed. Mm -hmm. But the 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 want to have children. It's it's almost like it started off, I would say, I was listening to Crow uh, this week, and it's mm -hmm. funny because I was preparing for this episode. I, I I listen to a couple podcasts often to, to just, you know, just as I do. And, and it's funny because lately, the last, I'd say, three or four shows that we put out, the topic that I wanted to kind of do that week mm. was what Freeman Fly and Crow Triple Seven <laughs> were were touching on as well, and and what they also uh, touched upon was that the female, um, what did they call it, the the female revolution, like you know, back in the seventies, burn your bras, women can be equal to men, mm -hmm, equal paying mm -hmm, salaries, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. all of this. Um, this revolution was one of the largest um, blemishes to the family unit because all of a sudden now you had all these governmental agencies coming out. Um, and it's not the problem that the governmental agencies came out to add assistance to these people. The problem was is that for the first time in humanity, the male was was no longer necessary within the family unit mm -hmm. because the government replaced the male in the form mm -hmm. of finance and aid and support. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, the government took on so much responsibility to the point where it's now even seen more and more what they would call toxic masculinity today. It's it's seen as like men have to be beta males and very effeminate to get anywhere in life. Mm. And you see that in all the TV shows. You know, Mad Max is a pussy in the last fucking Mad Max. Watch the original Mad Max and you like 20 years earlier, 30 years earlier, and you think to yourself, this is this explains a lot. Right. That's just mm -hmm. one example. And mm -hmm. you look at any movie that's been done in the last mm -hmm. uh, 10 years and you can see it progressively becoming it's crasser true. and crasser yeah, yeah. that the 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 the, the leading role males mm -hmm. are no longer men with confidence. Just in general. I mean, you know, me as a woman, if I go out on the street and I can I have to be honest, like lately or in the last couple of years, there are no men that I felt physically attracted to. On, you know, on 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 that on, on that level yeah, because I, right? I looked at it and it's like sometimes I I wasn't even sure if that was a man or a woman. <laughs> yeah. And I was just perce perceiving like that weird mixture of energy. There was, you know, it's like, is that male energy? Is that female energy? And yeah, I think you know, we forget that deep down we still very much are mammals and uh, have also that, you know, the sexual yep. structure. And it's we are not equal on that level. Female is a female, and a male is a male, and we shouldn't be yeah. because both parts are needed and both parts are um, different. Which doesn't mean that also male has female aspects to it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, 
but you know just mm-hmm. bringing that into into a relation that is is healthy to you know just like live that that male energy on a right. on a healthy level and i think that is either suppressed or i don't know what the reason for for it is but i know right. from the female side because i experienced it myself that i always felt like i have to be tough in order to be you had to you had to have more masculine attributes yeah. to survive within the scholastic system to survive system. absolutely yeah. not only in university and how, sh- how shameful is that it is absolutely that you have shameful. to bury your f- and this is a funny thing yeah. because they talk about women in the workplace but it's not women they want women to become more masculine in the workplace and that's actually to me it's a blemish and it's an insult i think that women should be more offended by believing that they need to be like men and become more masculine i think yeah, feminine just, yeah. women you know, women, all women have their own balance mm-hmm. of how this girl's more feminine, this one's more masculine. Mm-hmm. End of story. Everybody mm-hmm. has their own balance. Mm-hmm. But to feel shame that you don't have enough masculine energy because you can't sit at a boardroom table and and yell at the the, the, the other men, mm-hmm. you know, and the men are taming, the, they're doing this the opposite now. They're becoming more feminine, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. It's an inversion, a weird inversion that, I don't know. Where yeah, it really well, comes from. It, where does yeah. it come from? And 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 as Crow said, he, he believes in, and it's funny because these are all ideas that I've been talking about for a long mm-hmm. time. You know that yeah, I, I think that the 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 women's rights revolution was was really like it, it's a funny thing that, that what he mentioned, I, which I didn't really know, but I knew of the uh, the programming at the time mm-hmm. that uh, the main women uh, or the main woman, I can't remember her name right now, uh, of the women's rights activism uh, activist movement in. Um, in the U.S., uh, you can go on on YouTube and find her saying in a couple interviews that uh, she was tapped by the CIA and became a CIA uh, operative. Mm. And and what that means is that you uh, the CIA operatives mean is that you're a you're um you're a civilian, and the CIA comes to you and says uh, they have something on you maybe or whatever the case may be. They may give you financial incentives. They may give you other incentives. But they ask you to report to them and they ask you to do certain things in mm-hmm. the sense of influence. And, and through that, you know, one of the most famous bands on the planet for being pretty much CIA operatives is the uh, the living dead, right? Deadheads mm-hmm. way back in the day. Um, and, and and these are and, and the idea was, is, you know, I don't want to just focus on the CIA. Every country has their own form of intelligence agencies that get corrupted by this type of um perversion where they try to socially restructure um the the population mm-hmm. in, in order for for whatever gains that they have to make them more docile to make them less fertile whatever the case may be a good example is when israel was being formed um back in the late 40s what they did in order to uh, make the palestinian people weaker was expose them to pornography and uh, so they set up um, TV stations in the within the the, the newly made Israeli border, mm-hmm. and they broadcasted pornography on open channels for free to the Palestinians just to divide the family unit, right? And it, it's interesting, like these these types of things. The fact that pornography is so easily accessible today, the fact that um, when you watch a movie, it's not a movie that's written because it's a good story. It's mm-hmm. a movie that's been written and funded. People have to also see where the money comes from. And when you start looking at these names that we have on the list, this is this is a source of where a lot of this money comes from. When they said uh, in that paper, in that newspaper article, and I can uh, pull up a couple other articles about George Soros alone, when you say this guy helped fund or helped convert previous East Bloc countries that were under the Soviet Union to 
democracy. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. How do you think he did that? What he ended up doing was, is he ended up going into East Bloc countries and funding the opposition. He ended up funding um, what, what eventually, like, uh, preventing the people from an actual democratic decision. It's, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's the most undemocratic thing you could ever think of is by coercing people and, and funding the opposition and, and uh, blasting the streets with propaganda to make them believe something mm -hmm. that you want them to believe. That's how mm -hmm. that was done, mm -hmm. right? This is how the formal U Yugoslavia was broken up after Tito died, right? And this is why you have now a dozen countries left over from it. This is why Romania and Hungary, you know, the former Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire, Empire, when they separated, they were in, 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 in turmoil, right? Obviously, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was previously to that, but the, when Yugoslavia fell, that was in the 80s. And George mm -hmm. Soros played a big role in coercing these governments to do a certain thing. And and he was investing in certain companies there. So he was, he was taking his money, which they call philanthropy. And this is why I say philanthropy is bullshit. He's taking his, uh, his money, calling it philanthropy because he's donating it mm -hmm. to parties, uh, you know, political parties in, in impoverished countries that are going through problems, trying to get them to toe the company line. Because once you've taken that much money from someone, it doesn't come without like, a, you know, something attached to it. Mm -hmm. And then when that when that country turns over in his favor, he has invested in little startup groups that he may have indirectly or directly helped create that he now gets a huge financial kickback from mm -hmm. because the yeah, stock yeah. bonds go crazy when they all become incorporated and so on. And, and this is one of these things where when you see people who call themselves philanthropists that have this much money, they're not in the business of making more money. Mm. These people don't need more money, <laughs> right? So when they're putting their money out, they give that impression to the world that it's charity. It's not mm -hmm. charity. They're, 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 what, they, what people like this do is they collect countries. They collect people. And they put them in their back pockets. And then they sit at a table and they play poker. Mm. And while they're playing poker, it's like, all right, well, uh, I'll meet your Belarus and I'll raise you, uh, let's say, Croatia. Mm -hmm. Right? And uh, I'll, I'll throw in this politician with uh, with it uh, while you're at it. Right? <laughs> and, and and that's how it's done. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's as scary as it is. I mean, you must have seen some of this. In, in, in your world so far in um, mm -hmm. in your foundation, like maybe not that perverted. I've mm -hmm. seen it in, in, in my world because I've worked for some of the richest companies and uh, people in uh, in Germany, right? So I've seen it in small part, small portions, which brings us to really the, the big meat of today's topic. Mm -hmm. There's also one good comment, the last one. I'll post it in a second. Uh, uh, here, yeah. I'll put it yeah. down. Philanthropy equals money laundering, lol. Absolutely. 100%. And that's really, when you start to, uh, so um, when you look at over here in Germany, for example, if a regular Joe immigrant wants to um, start his own business, mm. right? Just his own thing, right? He wants to be a freelancer and he wants to do his mm -hmm. own thing. And you want to become, uh, you want to have access to um, what we call retail, uh, not retail, uh, wholesale prizes, right? You have to go to these wholesalers. Uh, let's say you're an electrician and you want to lay cables. Mm -hmm. You have to go to these wholesalers and prove that you have an, elect uh, an electrical education. And when they look at you and they say, no, not doing that. You mm -hmm. don't have an education. You have to buy retail. Mm -hmm. all, you, all you can sell are your hours. Sad. But you can start up a, mm -hmm. an incorporated company over here that's called like a GmbH, which is mm -hmm. GmbH. It's the equivalent of the American Incorporated. 
And uh, then what you do is you hire an electrician who has that that ticket. Then you apply to all of these different wholesalers. And then you get the account. Hmm. Then you fire the electrician. <laughs> and they <laughs> do this done? shit all the time, <laughs> right? They do this shit all the time. So now the company operates without the education and the company doesn't exist. Hmm. Never has. Like, I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fictional entity that's supposed mm -hmm. to sit at the table equally to humans. Hmm. And that's the, that's the scary part about a lot of these foundations and so on and so forth. The way that they get to where they are are by using people as a resource and disposing of them when they're no longer valuable, mm -hmm. right? And so the big meat of today's um, show is... And I got this, it's funny because like I said, this is exactly what I wanted to talk about. And I was listening to Freeman Fly this week and it was the exact same topic. He was interviewing a guy named Les Luther, who uh, obviously it's a, it's a nickname. Um, <laughs> he He's, a, I think he's a medical doctor or a trauma doctor or something like that. And he works in hospitals and uh, he's originally from the UK, I believe. And um, he has traveled the world and uh, seen you know, hospitals and so on and so forth all over the place. And at the same time, he uh, started reporting over the last two years what he was seeing. And he ended up recently going to the Ukraine. And before that, he was in Egypt or the Egyptian, like the, the regime change and all that stuff. And he posed this really great question or, or made this statement. And he said, listen, doesn't matter what you hear, mm -hmm. whether it be the, the main media narrative or the alternative media narrative, you have to ask yourself, what are you actually subjectively experiencing, mm -hmm. right? And it's it's a really important thing to kind of check yourself. Don't get so carried away with with all this shit online and all this stuff because specifically if you're someone who's on the computer and you're researching, the way the information is presented to you, when you go shopping, it's 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 based off of your your geographic location mm -hmm. uh, and your previous activity. Everything's custom tailored towards the experience that you should be having. Mm -hmm. And it's one of these ideas, you know, back in the past. Uh, they still do it today, but corporations used to pay doormen to have to just have boxes beside them from a certain company, like Coca-Cola boxes. Oh yeah. So that when the people walked in and out of the door, they'd say, "Oh, more Coca-Cola packages being delivered. I guess it's a good drink. I'm going to go buy some." Right? Subliminal advertisement mm -hmm. comes through in so many different forms mm -hmm. that uh, I don't want to say force, but encourages you to develop an opinion that might not be yours. And going back to that colleague of yours who doesn't want kids because she believes it's going to be bad for the carbon footprint. Is that really her idea or did she just see that package beside enough doormen to believe it? Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, metaphorically speaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and this now becomes to me that, that, that big thing, check yourself, mm -hmm. you know, really ask yourself subjectively. How how much how how much of this have you seen to be true? Just like uh, the D Queen had mentioned earlier, um, how do you how do you base the opinion that um, there's overpopulation? Mm -hmm. It's an amazing question, yeah, and yeah. it's because you really Simple. have to ask yourself. I've traveled to every major city in in the United States and most of Canada, and I'll tell you, it's the same pattern. Even in even in Germany, I've seen a lot of big cities over here, all over Europe. You have city centers that are packed and they're built poorly they're not built to help people move through the city quickly it's not yeah. built efficiency uh, yeah, with yeah. efficiency right it, it's built to create stagnance right when 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 they tear up the road they don't tell you they're going to do it and they don't build the they, they don't put up a sign to tell you how to get to where you got to go mm. uh because the, the 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 road has been closed they just close the road over here right it's it's a, it's a disaster and and it gives you this illusion that there's this constant struggle in the city and that constantly stuff needs to be done and changed and upgraded because mm -hmm. of the demand. It's not true. 
It's just not true. All right. You go, all you got to do is leave the city and you'll see empty fields and old buildings rotting. And the further you go from the city between major cities, the more you'll see that. You'll see large farmlands being exponentially um, um, increased. And they tell us that we need to have uh, all these farmlands to support our growing population. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I've been really learning a lot about permaculture over the last year because it's something that I'm I'm really interested in now that I'm taking a break from work. I quit my last job and now I started my own company and I want to spend more time on other technologies. And to me, nature is the best technology mm-hmm. there is. There's mm-hmm. nothing that can beat it. It's, it's unbelievably well-programmed by nature. And learning to live with it is our job, not to program it, right? Yeah. And um, so I'm starting to do a lot of stuff around the house here and I'm really getting into that. And the basic principles and philosophies about permaculture show people who have implemented permacultural techniques into their even rural to urban and suburban lifestyles. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing that an acre of land can feed 10 families. Mm -hmm. And that's, that that seems to be the, the, the the standard thing that if you take um, uh, a rural or permaculture farm or homestead or whatever you want to call Mm -hmm. it and um this this permaculture has been going now for about a decade so it's 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 definitely got that biological ecology built into the soil Mm -hmm. right you don't need pesticides uh when the little when the bad bugs come there are good bugs there to prevent (laughs) you know the the good the the good plants that you want to live because everything is is in harmony there yeah and the yields like i was reading a book of uh fukuoka a, a japanese dude um who does this on a large scale with um, uh, agriculture. And he he does a lot of citrus plants and grains and stuff like that. No pesticides, mm. no tilling, nothing, none of that. The only thing he does is pruning. And mm-hmm. when he uh, he harvests, he doesn't he doesn't uproot the plants. He only cuts them at halfway, and and then when the sun shines, he takes all the mulch that's no longer needed. You know, after you've separated the the seed from the the shaft, mm-hmm. he he takes the shaft back and puts it on the earth mm-hmm. in order to protect it from the sun and mm-hmm. all that. So mm-hmm. there there's human involvement because you want you want to re- remove yeah. the, the 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 plants, but the plants develop a symbiotic relationship to the people farming on that land. And expect it and want it mm-hmm. because it knows that with every generation it gets richer and better. Mm-hmm. So how is it that I'm seeing these people doing these permaculture, using permaculture philosophies and techniques, feed 10 families on one acre, whereas they're telling us now we need thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of desolate landscape in order to feed a dying population, right? And I I heard, like whether it's a real statistic or not, I heard from a, an Australian permaculture expert that the urban permaculture garden is 97% more efficient when you talk about how much food you can take off of every square meter mm-hmm. in that property mm-hmm. in contrast to um, large agriculture. Yeah, I mean, just today, you know, we went... Um the forest I just recently inherited. <laughs> yeah, so she inherited. Well, the parents are still alive. Yeah, so they're they, still they alive. gifted they it to her before they died because me. it's easier with taxes and all that. And it's it's like a nice piece of forest. and mm-hmm. But at, um, next to it, you have a huge field, right? And we we're just sitting on at the edge of that field. And I remember there was a little bee just looking for, for anything to eat. Mm. And there was nothing left. There was just like that huge field. And you could see that they were putting on the pesticides, you know, had a weird yeah. kind of color. Yeah. 
there was nothing there which was alive. And it was just so sad to see that one bee desperately looking for food mm -hmm. and just like, that's not working. Yeah, he tried, he, he, he has to find like stuff between the moss and the forests, you yeah. know? Yeah. So, all right. Um, let's keep it going. And uh, I think we can wrap up soon. I mean, the, the, the big mm -hmm. thing that I really wanted to talk about today was the good club. Go and look at it. Go check mm -hmm. it out. Mm -hmm. Go ask yourself what these people have done. When we talk about Soros, he's just one example on this whole list. That dude in the bottom left, um, Robertson, he's responsible for making uh, hedge funds mainstream from what I've gathered. Oprah Winifrey, you guys know her. <laughs> it's very hard to not know her, mm -hmm. right? Bloomberg, you know, Rockefeller, Warren Buffett, Ted Turner, these are, these are dinner table names and each one of these people. Um, like these, these are, uh, these are owners of TV stations. These are owners of media empires, right? Mm. These are, these are people who have massive, massive influence. So when George Soros and Bill Gates calls a meeting that they call the good club to change the world for the better, and they get these people to show up, how do you mm. think they plan on changing the world? Right? So I, 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 I've also heard many times on the Freeman Fly, um, podcast, Disney, their, their catchphrase to capture the imagination. It's actually true. That's what they want. They want <laughs> they your imagination, imagination and they're going to fucking destroy it mm -hmm. and they're going to put something else back in there. They really need you. So this is all for your attention. Mm -hmm. Ask yourself when you go outside, you know, mm -hmm. whether it be that that climate change, population uh, um, decrease. Mm -hmm. When you really ask yourself, why are um, so many species dying in large numbers? Mm -hmm. Agriculture, to me, I still think one of the largest problems. And, and what does Bill Gates do recently? He goes out in the last couple of years and buys as many farms as he can because during the whole corona bullshit, the price has dropped. And what is he doing? He's planting corn for biodiesel. Mm -hmm. Right? This is what he's doing to save the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, increasing pesticides. Mm -hmm. Increasing technologies in pesticides. Right? It, also, it, yeah, it, it, uh, 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 there was, I think, in 2020, there's patent um, 060606. And it was, uh, uh, I, I don't know if it's the Melinda Gates Foundation or uh, from Microsoft directly, but um, the patent is to be able to encode cryptocurrencies to your genetic structure. So that the idea is that in the, in the, in the near future, when you really put these pieces together, in the not-so-distant future, the idea that you're born and your genetics is scanned, instead of having a social security number that's made up on a computer, your social, your social security number will be your genetics. <clears throat> and your bank account and your cryptocurrencies will be linked to your genetics. <clears throat> so the only way you can actually buy something is to follow the rules, toe the company line, <clears throat> and uh, have the right genetics at the right time. Yeah, I would say that, you know, specifically about the genetics, if you if there are a couple of things there that uh, are not so, you know, like any diseases or something that's hard for you to get insurance or whatever, just like you, you they know everything about you. Well, and that's similar to that movie Gattaca. Mm, oh, yeah. Where yeah, they, yeah, they, they predetermine mm. your pretty much uh, the age you're going to die and what you're going to die mm. from when you're born. And uh, this idea of uh, lowering the population, what do you think is going to happen? When it's no longer two 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 and a half people uh, being born per female head. Now, when you talk about uh, the uh, uh, population of the rabbits being mm -hmm. called up to eighty percent, and there's only twenty percent left over, 
what do you think is going to happen with our with our mm -hmm. the future of our species when um, you have all these toxins around us and they're there for a reason? That's the reason why I'm saying that. Like these people got together and they just th and this is one of many groups. This is mm -hmm. only a, this is only a club that we know of, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It goes into detail in the article about how. Uh, this club, this meeting was supposed to be secret, and and somebody mm -hmm. had uh, had kind of uh, I can't remember how, but one of their assistants or something like that had come out and and uh, mm -hmm. and, and made it public. Yeah, and also you know me me as a biologist from studying also natural systems, and that's one of the first thing that you learn when you are looking into population dynamics and all that. There are a couple equations that you can look at mm -hmm. in order to predict how a population will change. You know, like the the birth rate, the death rate, the survival rate, the reproduction rate, all all these kind of things, and so. From all the the systems I've seen and and you know the, the calculations, the the natural system will always balance itself out. Once you know, just yeah. a very yeah. easy um, example is always the one with the hare and the the snowshoe hare and the wolves or you know the foxes. If the um, the foxes are increasing because there are a lot of uh, prey for them, you know they, right. they increase. They're, so there will be a lot of predators. If there are a lot of predators, then the prey will decrease. Well, guess what? If the prey decreased, then also the predator will decrease. So it's a never-ending cycle, and it's a very biological cycle that will always, you know, balance the populations of of the predator and the prey out. And so it's the same thing with right. all the other populations. It, the resources itself already kind of, you know, bring into the whole. How the population will uh, will so change. So, what, what can you tell us then about uh, biology population statistics then on that level? Oh, it's it's a very complicated uh, topic. I remember that I, for a whole semester I was studying different equations. You know, you have different models. You have the exponential uh, model. You have the logarithmic uh, model, depending mm -hmm. on uh, different different species. Looking at, for example, you might have heard about the R and the K strategies uh, amongst animals and also plants. Mm -hmm. So the the K strategy is the K comes from capacity. Mm -hmm. So for example, an elephant is a K strategist. Okay. They ah, living, yes, yes, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, they're living in in an environment where you know, like a, an elephant herd or elephants. If you would have a huge increase of elephants, they're huge, these animals, you know, they would right. just like in a in, in couple of years, they would reduce their resources and their environment could just not take any more of them. So they're already kind of living at their capacity. That's the idea behind it. So that's one female only has maybe one one offspring in, in many years because it takes for them very long to grow. Right. And it takes for them very a, a long time to become reproductive. And then they have their young and, it, you know, it needs to grow. Um, and and so per, per, per elephant female, maybe mm -hmm. they have like two calves or three calves in their yeah. whole life, which is not a lot compared to, for example, bacteria. Mm -hmm. can reproduce in, in minutes or in seconds like yeah. crazy. Yeah. And so there was that idea that for species who already are very, they are very big and they consume a lot of resources, mm -hmm. they won't have a lot of offsprings because their environment just can't take it anymore. Yeah. Whereas for animals or plants that are smaller, just like, you know, mouse, Turtles. mice. <laughs> no, well, yeah, mice, for example, or specifically bacteria is a very good example. Mm -hmm. These are so-called R strategy, uh, strategists. R is from reproduction, mm -hmm. means reproduction. So what they do, they don't need that much time to grow and start reproducing. They just do it pretty much right away. <laughs> right. Having a lot, a lot, a lot of offsprings. 
but they live in an environment that's just very unstable. You know, resources are um, right. like, scarce. Yeah. yeah, scarce, and they're going up and down. So most of their um, offsprings won't survive. Right. That's why they have to produce so many in order to just at least be have a stable mm -hmm. population, or maybe just increase a little bit population. So at the end, whether you want to be a K strategist or an R strategist, it always depends on your environment and the resource yeah. that you have. That's why, you know, we as humans, we don't need to interact with our population densities because it will even itself out just because of the right. resources that we have. Yeah, it's it's a funny thing, you know, when we, so we're talking about... And, in, and just to finish it yeah. up, and I think we as a human race, we created ourselves an environment where resources are not the way we could have them. As you said, you know, if, if you would follow that permaculture aspect... Mm -hmm where we create an environment that is rich and it's it's following natural cycles. Yeah, lush, whereas, full of life. Yeah. yeah, whereas an environment that we can see, you know, like uh, agricultural, open monoculture, guess what? Which of these environments will will mm -hmm. have more resources for us? And we just yeah. created that environment so you can predict uh, what kind of yeah. strategy we Agriculture should Agriculture needs big machines. It needs lots of diesels. It needs petroleum chemicals. It, yeah. it, it, it needs... Um, biological biological chemicals uh, agents yeah. in order to destroy life at a microbacterial level yeah. so that they can every year start fresh they call their they get their seeds from uh, yeah. large companies that are genetically modified mm -hmm. it's and, 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 and for what like actually the, the the amount of yield that you get from these large fields it's bullshit it is absolute it bullshit is, in contrast to what you would get with a decent acre that was done properly if you ask about who's getting what from it and then right. I can absolutely see that the business is producing you know, the seeds producing the machines, they are the big players. They get the money mm -hmm. from it. And the rest, it, it, it's not about feeding and producing as much um, healthy food as possible. That's yeah. not their goal. It's funny. I, I, I An episode we did a while ago was about uh, agriculture. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember learning that I was typing in, I was like, what are the largest agricultural companies on the planet? Mm -hmm. And John Deere came up to the, like, mm -hmm. the top. And I'm like, John Deere makes tractors. Like, obviously, like, yeah, yeah. They, they're an agricultural company now because they're involved. But agriculture is not even seen as a process of nature anymore. It's seen as no. a process of industrialization. Yeah, right? specifically, you know, if you want to have that type of agriculture, you need these big machines to to. And they're not necessary. Use the not these necessary. huge fields. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, um, this, this and the other thing too, like we talked about this uh, in, in radical ideas. I think it was the first episode this year we were talking about. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, what if we just stopped exporting food? What mm -hmm. if we just started to actually re uh, um, familiarize ourselves mm -hmm. with uh, our local environment and what we can grow and plant? And 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 you know, if you really ask yourself. How much of your money is mm -hmm. spent on uh, simple things like mm -hmm. um, heating, clean water and um, food and uh, meat and, uh, yeah. you know, uh, all the fresh, fresh milk, eggs, whatever it is that you're into. And then you ask yourself, if you just had all of that, mm -hmm. how much would you really have to work afterwards? You mm -hmm. know, like, would you still go to work if you had that? Like, yeah. And, and this to me, it, same thing with shelters. You yeah. know, um, you can't just go out and buy uh, a section of a field that's now been deemed for agricultural purpose. You can't do it. You can't. Mm. Th so these are areas that are now politically mm -hmm. locked up indefinitely yeah. that can't be used to build a house. Yeah, there was you know? always something I always asked myself, you know, when I was a biologist, also a PhD, I believe, because everyone said that, it's, mm -hmm. um, you know, resources are limited. That's why there is no... Um, 
no endless population growth, so the resources mm -hmm. limit limiting um, the the population in in, in yeah. animals and plants. And so that's what you learned in biology. That's what I learned in yeah. biology. Okay, that's interesting. And so it has always to do with resources. Right. And I thought like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. You know, of course, if there's not enough food, well, then they can't yeah. reproduce, and so populations not growing anymore. But then, as you said, you know, what is it that you experience? If I go outside into a forest, into um, a beautiful lake or just like a very still natural place, if you look at that place, you see so much um, wealth. Mm -hmm. like, In what sense? Like just a fill of... Fill of everything. Yeah, fill, fill of, of everything. species, yeah, yeah. fill of food. You see how everything is just like, you know, prospering. And yeah, yeah. And, and this is like... Oh, wow, and that you, doesn't when you're really... saying by fuller, you mean like uh, that, that, that uh, there's an abundance yeah, there of, an, uh, an, of, of un, an wealth. Endless yeah. abundance of, of yeah. things and everything. And also, you know, looking more into the spiritual aspect mm -hmm. where I more and more experience this abundance. And this is the question, is it really true? That there is, you know, things are endless on on that yeah. level, or is it just something that they want to tell us in order to make us mm -hmm. even feel worse when we're using up resources right. on on that level? Just as an a thought of, you know, as an idea to put that out there, because I think, and and you see that, I mean, nature, animals, and plants, and and life has been existing for so many years and will exist for many many more years. Yep. And if it's true that resources are endless, then shouldn't there be any life anymore up to that point? Mm -hmm. Take a look at this. This is um, this is Thomas Robert Malthus. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a name that should be a big dinner table name today, and I think a lot of people have forgot about this guy. Mm -hmm. And this guy is the real influence behind the good club, right? Everything they're talking about is based on his theory that mm -hmm. was called uh, later on, which was dubbed limits, limits to growth by, um, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter. The point is, is let's just, uh, let's just, let me just read this, who this guy is and what he's done. Robert, uh, Thomas Robert Malthus was an English economist, cleric, and scholar influential in the fields of political economy and demography. In 1798, book an essay on the principle of population malthus observed that an increase in a nation's food production improved the well-being of the population but the improvement was temporary because it led to population growth which in turn restored the original per capita product level now this is a guy who's taking um the population what he what then later on was called like the population problem <clears throat> right mm -hmm. and um Robert Malthus was like one of the greatest influences for uh, Charles Darwin and mm -hmm. later on Francis Galton. These are mm -hmm. uh, Charles Darwin, as you know, Origin of Species, Francis mm -hmm. Galton. He's the father of eugenics, mm -hmm. right? And um, the the idea of, of taking an economist, again, he was a cleric, so he was a, an economist and a religious man who felt that he, that uh, positions in society were were deserved for elite people right and um when you look at what francis galton did with darwin and malthus's work he wrote at you like in england like uh, there was a lot of of uh, racist ideology towards irish people after mm -hmm. uh, uh, francis galton came out with his idea of eugenics because he was helping the royal uh, societies of England at the time convinced the people that the Irish people were closer to the Negro than any other person in the UK. And for this reason, we can treat that they're, they're, they're below us because mm -hmm. Negroes are way down there and the rich English man is way up here. 
And so therefore the Irish people are genetically, because of their craniometry and all that stuff, closer to the Negro, we can enslave them. Mm -hmm. And that was the logic. That was how they uh, had their uh, mm -hmm. citizenship revoked. This is the this is this is where a lot of that stuff uh, came from. You know, like uh, this is this is the racism that was brought through politics in order to benefit a certain class at the time. Why Robert Malthus is still so important today is because people believe in limits to growth to the point where they say people are consuming all the resources of the planet and soon there will be no resources left. Mm -hmm. That's the theory. Mm -hmm. And he said that. Um, as a population becomes, uh, 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 or as a society becomes more improved, the population grows. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because if you think about it, um, the slowest population growth, even back in the day, was always in the in the well developed countries, mm -hmm. right? It was yeah. it was just I don't know what it is, but it's just like. Um, as you mentioned before, maybe when resources were more scarce, people had more kids because, you know, they couldn't survive as properly. Mm -hmm. And then after in the late 40s, when we came out with uh, penicillin and, and antibiotics en masse, mm -hmm. um, the ability to prevent child death mm -hmm. changed. Mm -hmm. That was a huge thing. But I would still argue that, say, the, the two biggest technologies that changed our world as far as preventing death at a young age was the toilet. <laughs> and uh, penicillin, because mm -hmm. now sanitary uh, mm -hmm. conditions were were created in uh, in the household, and uh, the ability to prevent a child from dying. My my uh, my father's uncle died in the early forties or mid forties in Germany because he stubbed his toe uh, going swimming and got infection, and his blood went septic, and he died. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to add on to that, mm -hmm. as he said, you know, like humans use up resources, and therefore population growth is and uh, not endless right or what was that the idea is is that there's a limited um, this is where yeah. limited uh so um limits to growth I'll, I'll pull that up after what that is and who wrote that um i think it's the club of rome and um what they say is that there's a limitation to mm -hmm. the resources on mm -hmm. this planet which is but we, that humans use them up right? yeah humans like like oil we use up yeah. all the oil then there's none left and yeah. the, then we have bad times but it's interesting because i wrote a i read a book by robert zubrin um who really went into great detail about robert malthus and it's funny because i when i was younger mm -hmm. I, I was also duped into a lot of the social ideas that uh, humans are like a virus you know you mm -hmm. watch the movie the matrix mm -hmm. it had lots of great effects and that was the big message of the movie. Mm -hmm. Humans are a virus and need to be enslaved. And therefore, when machines enslave us and plug us into pods, we can cause less damage and be used as a resource. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can be given this beautiful virtual world that we can live in, mm -hmm. to, but we could cause less damage. Mm -hmm. um, with limits to growth, the biggest issue with limits to growth is, first off, every everything that Robert Malthus predicted didn't didn't come to term. Mm -hmm. He was wrong about everything. And 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 uh, Robert Zubrin says the reason why Robert Malthus was wrong about everything was because the biggest thing he overlooked is that humans are intense. Uh, what do you call them? Um, environment engineers. I just wanted to say up, you know, specifically right? bring up that point. Um, being ecosystem engineer, which means they're not only using up resources, but at the same time they're creating new resources. That's right. And just like the rabbits, actually. And, and Robert Zubrin put into great <laughs> yeah detail that we as humans create way more resources than we can deplete. Mm -hmm. And we do that in, in, in through our technologies mm -hmm. and through the mm -hmm. fact that we can um, inherit information mm -hmm. 
uh, like other animals cannot mm-hmm. in the sense that we could write a book and a, th- and a, mm-hmm. a thousand years later we can pick it up and still read it right yeah. Yeah, and, yeah and and the, so that information doesn't get lost through mm-hmm. us unless it's being suppressed the same the same with the rabbits also called you know ecosystem engineers because they create their environment in a way that not only they can live from but yeah. also other species can can Dovetail grow off of it yeah and just easy you know f- with the rabbits they they go and they're herbivores they, they eat plants but yet while they're eating the plants, they have the seeds in their little, you know, shitty mm-hmm. <laughs> rabbit, rabbit poop. And if they go over the place and poop in the same place, they're actually creating a very fertile soil yep. for the seeds to uh, to come up again. So yep. there is just, just like a, you know, a, a circle. That's right. I, that's what I'm reading more and more right now about the permaculture stuff is how to use animals properly in a, in a, in a permacultural mm. environment. And I say use because when you're building the system, it, it, you got to do it strategically. Because you mm. know, like, I mean, those of you who have chickens know that they'll they'll peck up every little grain of grass. Mm-hmm. But if you supply them with the proper resources, they'll pay you back with, uh, you know, chicken poops and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and scratches. Because and actually the, the scratching on the trees is good for the trees. Yeah, the same for the rabbits right? also. They scratch up the, the floor in a way so that only specific plants can grow and not everything is overgrown by Absolutely. all the species. Exactly. And and mosses and fungis, the trees yeah. become more resilient. So there's, it, it, there's a, it's a lot more to it than that. And a lot yeah, of yeah. nature is very counterintuitive, which is why you can see that a lot of the people that try to um, logically override nature... Mm-hmm by doing things like large farming and so on and so forth, you can see the destruction. Mm-hmm. And this is where, you know, now when we talk about Robert Malthus, yes, there is destruction happening in the sense of pollution. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The But but when you really break it down, um, I, I've, I've talked about this in the past that I'm, I'm not a big fan of the limited liability philosophy, mm-hmm. specifically uh, when we talk about um, multinational companies and so on and so forth, that they can go around just like uh, with uh, Grudenthal when they had Kantagan, they can create unbelievable amount of damage mm. and when it's time for someone to be responsible for it it turns yes. out i think that whole story last week about grudenthal uh, about them um creating 12,000 deformed children like people with no arms and stuff yeah. like that and killing many others nobody was held like everybody in it, it was almost like in my opinion a shot a show of strength of the mm. large company today it, it's like all other companies saw that and they took inspiration because mm. now they can create more damage knowing that they're they're okay from from being held responsible. And probably this is the purpose of that whole thing, I, you know. I kind like of believe so. To really just just oh. just open the the gates for them to just experience everything that they want without having the fear of, of um have to take responsibility for it. Right. Yeah. 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 So, what so, do you think? Yeah. In a today, couple words, how to? Yeah, I'll talk about a couple little things. Uh, it's it's funny today. I really wanted to go through more of the good club uh, and go through each person, but we don't really need to. Yeah, I think that you guys can, you know, take a look at this list. Look at these people. Remember the good club and don't forget it. And <laughs> and mm. when you look at these people, they played such a huge role in the last five years as to mm. how the, the 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 COVID pandemic rolled out across the globe and um um and, and the policies that were set into place like fl- two weeks to flatten the curve these are all organizations that are that are owned and indirectly controlled by these people mm-hmm. specifically these people i'm saying these people played a huge role in influencing uh the world to about vaccination programs and about um um social distancing and so on and so forth and so it just goes to show you like i think that the if anything um the way that covid was dealt with on a global scale shows you that what they're doing works. Mm. What these people doing is working. So then you have to ask yourself, 
do you trust in the calling? Do you do you want to put your trust mm. in the in in the hands of people like this, so that uh, when they choose to call the population by whatever percent they deem fit, that you're going to trust them and say you guys got it. You see the world in a better way than I will ever see it mm-hmm. because you have more money. You've been around a little bit more than me. Maybe maybe it's best. You know, like th- yeah. these are our t- these are the elders of today. It's right. exactly uh, the the last thing I also wanted wanted to add. Um, you know, as mm-hmm. you said, they came together this elite in order to solve the problems. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like um, I think I I believe everyone has the knowledge needed for themselves in order to live a life that is in accordance to to nature. It's, it's yeah. in accordance to create an, an environment and an earth that we can live, you know, and many generations after us happily and, and in, in, in balance with nature, we yeah. all have that knowledge. We don't need people from somewhere with a lot of money telling us what to do in order to make the right decisions. And I think mm-hmm. that's the first thing to remember that, you know, we all have it in us. We don't need to have billions and billions in order to mm-hmm. to to know what's what we have to do, but just like... Yeah find a way to get back to your soul and you know just really phone is ringing this distracting me in a second Mm -hmm. just to you know find a way what what is real to you what is what does feel good to you what does make sense for you and what things are you trusting and you know you trust in your own experience in your own way to see the world and feel things Mm -hmm. and what is it that you think is is important and true yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I want to bring up um, antitrust for a second because it when I when we talk about mm-hmm. these th- th- this group of people being able to come together and do something like this, this is the first word that comes to my head is antitrust. Antitrust uh, laws are regulations that encourage competition by limiting market power of any particular firm. This often involves ensuring that uh, measures uh, mergers and acquisitions don't overly concentrate market power or form monopolies, as well as break up firms that have become monopolies. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it interesting. So the idea of antitrust, just like to break it down in a very simple way, is that if you have five companies, and let's say these five companies are responsible for a, a specific product, mm-hmm. right? Um, clean water, right? As example. And um, then they get together for a meeting. All the owners of these five companies behind closed door, don't tell anybody on the in the general public. And they say, hey, guys, guess what? If we add this chemical, we, we, we could increase profit. Mm. It'll be a little bit, you know, sketchy for people's health en masse, but that's only like, we have scientific papers here that mm-hmm. tell us it's not mm-hmm. that dangerous. And so let's do this. And so then they go back out into the world. And, and even foremost, they alter the prizes. Like another good example would be like a candy bar company or something mm-hmm. like that. They get together with all the, well, maybe not candy bars because it's a whatever. It doesn't matter. Any type of company that has the ability to say, um, you know, uh, the price of, uh, of carpeting doesn't matter. And you want carpets in your house. Everybody, you know, there was a time where everyone wanted carpeting, right? <laughs> and these companies would get together behind closed doors and say, hey, um, the new price for next year's line is going to be this much. And if you guys all take this price, then everyone's going to pay this price and we mm-hmm. make more money. Mm-hmm. Instead of actually having to change uh, the ingredients in the carpets to make better qualities or you know make shittier qualities mm-hmm. so we can sell it for cheaper, let's just all agree that this is the new market price. Mm-hmm. And then they, you know, they high five and they leave. Um, the problem, that's antitrust. It's antitrust mm-hmm. because what these people are doing is behind closed doors, they're monopolizing the prices 
because the owners of the companies have agreed that they're all going to sell mm -hmm. three, you know, for three hundred percent more mm -hmm. next year, mm -hmm. and everyone's just going to do it. That's called antitrust, and these are these are law like IBM and uh, um, um, Exxon and uh, General Motors. They've all mm -hmm. played antitrust, uh, you know, specifically in the automotive industry. Antitrust is a huge problem because um, you know what really is the cost of making this stuff, and for like when was the last time any upcoming car company actually made it to the table? Other than like the last one we all know of is Tesla, mm. and uh, that's something that's almost in a category of its own, right? Um, and I know a couple people who have little car companies that tried to come up, you know, and the best they can do is become like a, a cool chop shop, you know, where they chop stuff up and make newer cars or whatever, you mm. know, like cool things out of parts. But to actually become the next GM and compete with them, you can't, right? Anyway. Um, that's a bit of a mouthful, but uh, to, 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 to finish up the show for today, mm -hmm. um, you know, we went over a lot. I can keep going for another hour because I'm just looking at <laughs> the notes that I had. So we're going to definitely have to separate this into a second, a part two of this show yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, call it for today. Mm -hmm. um, I think, again, going back to the idea of trusting these people, mm -hmm. trust in the culling. It reminds me of uh, Bible school when I was younger. Mm. Um, and, uh, there's a story of doubting Thomas mm -hmm. that, uh, I remember when I was younger that the story of doubting Thomas was there and Thomas was like the other Judas, you know, he was, the, it was, it was a bad thing that he doubted that he, was he didn't. He the naysayer. He was the naysayer. <laughs> the, the fact that he, the fact that he didn't have faith was a negative thing and it was really pushed forth mm -hmm, that way, mm -hmm. uh, through the church when I learned it, mm -hmm. that. Thomas, doubting Thomas was bad mm. and that it was a big lesson that he had to learn that, uh, and, and the story not goes, the, yeah, the, not to doubt. And, uh, the, the story goes as following is the apostles got together and, um, they said that, uh, Christ is back. Jesus is back. Mm -hmm. He survived the, res uh, the, the, the crucifixion and, and he's back. And Thomas is like, I don't believe you guys. I saw him die. I was there. <laughs> I saw him bleed out. Yeah, he's yeah. gone. And they're like, no, I saw him yesterday. He's back, I promise you. And he's like, I don't believe it. And then all of a sudden they have, uh, you know, a, a scrumptious little meal together. And then J Jesus walks in and he's like, hey, guys, how's it going? And, uh, yeah, modern Testament version. And, uh, and, 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 and then Thomas still doesn't believe it. He's like, I don't believe you're him. I think this is a trick. You guys mm -hmm. are playing trick on me. You're, you're not Jesus. You're, you're some other dude. Mm. And uh, it wasn't until he was able to grab his his mm -hmm. wrists and inspect the the, mm -hmm. the nail marks in his hands and, and wrists and all that, that he then believed that it was actually Jesus and he survived mm -hmm. the crucifixion. And that's the story of Doubting Thomas, that he needed too much proof to be able to believe in something that was real. And it's shown as a negative thing uh, to tell kids like yeah. doubting Thomas is an asshole Isn't because he didn't have enough faith. That's the essence of science. You know, you make several experiments in order to um, verify that you would just saw you. You're right? not just believing something. You just want to have proof by right? uh, by um, different data sets. Right. That's so, the same thing. He was just a good scientist. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. Right. Maybe, maybe doubting Thomas was like, you know... Uh, 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 scientific mind at the times. I don't remember what he did for a living. Probably a, <laughs> probably a fisherman like the rest of them. He was a statistician. Statistician, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, two holes equals fucking crucifixion. Wow. <laughs> um, so with, uh, with, with that being said, um, there's one more story I kind of wanted to share today. Um, and so for all of you guys who have hung out into the later minutes of this uh, 
uh, of this episode today, um, I'm going to tell you about a, a job that a company that I worked for took on for the King of Oman. Mm. And Oman is a, 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 com- a country in the uh, Arab Peninsula area, the Emirates, whatever it's called. And um, we were to uh, install really, really big TVs into his ship. Now, I say ship. He calls it a yacht, but it's a ship. The guy lives on a, 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 an overgrown cruise ship. Mm-hmm. He has two of them. One's constantly being remodeled, and the other one he's constantly living on. And the ship um, pen, pendulates between islands within uh, the, 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 ocean, the, the sea where Oman is. And um, I'm telling you guys this story because, one, it's, it's, it's important to understand people like who have the power of like the king of Oman. What type of people they are and the live the lives that they live and where they really spend your money, you know, uh, it, it's it's important to know this stuff, right? Um, and so, what what does he do? Is he pendulates between all of these different islands uh, on a really really big cruise ship, and then he just lives on it. And every hour, um, there's a bomb squad that has to go around the the, the, the ship, and uh, he has a crew of two hundred people, and um, that's it. He just lives on the ship, and uh, so the new ship he got. Uh, had uh, bigger turbines in the bottom and was, you know, more balls. The problem he had is he was really getting angry that the ship kept getting stuck. It kept getting stuck because in the uh, in the sea near Oman, the um, the 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 water's not that deep, and so he he'd be going off to one island and and on his way to his favorite island, um, it, the, the 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 propellers below the ship were pulling up too much sediment from the from mm-hmm. the ocean bed and ruining the propellers and ruining the the, the the engines, right? And he was tired of it. He was tired of constantly having to fix his engines and he wanted that big ship and he wanted to he wanted it to be able to fare in that water. And so what was his solution? I asked you this before. <laughs> I, I think I had the I had the thought in my mind, and I thought like, oh, that actually can't be true. So, but I promise you, I it's true. This is this it. is like I say with with my work. I, I I see inside things like this all the time, and it's and it's unbelievable. This is why when I see you know rich uh, good club people, and I th- and I think to myself what kind of people they are and how they spend their money and time, and 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 so opposite to this philanthropy this philanthropy that you see on mm. on the planet, uh, what's being pushed to uh, forward as like uh, good Samaritans, right? Um, so the king of Oman was sick and tired of his of his propellers and motors breaking, um, so they paved the ocean. They paved the, the sea. The, the the strips that he wanted to often drive, they laid concrete. He said, I'm fucking sick of the of of of, of the of all the, the little fish and the and the sea and and, and the tide. <laughs> oh Fuck it. God. You know? Pave it. So they paved it. So now he just has a nice little waterway where he's got it's he's still he's still he's still you know, um when I say pave it, he paved the floor, the the the, the bed of the sea so that he could make it to that island without having any sediment jump up into his propeller. So interesting story. And uh, again, this is just a story I'm telling you guys. You don't have to believe it. <laughs> it could be for, for all you know, it's bullshit. I, for all I know, it's bullshit. I mean, this is a story that I've heard from working with these people. Now you guys are getting it third hand down. So uh, it's up to you, maybe fourth hand down, because it's technically from me to you. And then the, the people I got it from who were mm. working on the ship. I think it's possible. <laughs> yeah. There we yeah. go. I got more stories. Anyways. Next time. We'll next go into time. greater yeah. details. We've already been here doing this for two hours today. This has definitely become a part two. You know, I yeah, think we can sure. continue with this next week. Um, ask yourselves, do you trust in the calling? 
sleep on it think about it <laughs> have yourselves a lovely weekend yeah and we'll see you next week bye 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 bye